Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, Kenna, today we're going to start... Uh, off our episode a little differently than usual. Oh, go- oh golly. <laughs> We're going to do a pop quiz. Okay. You're always really good at them, so I think it's going to be okay. I'm really good at taking tests. Yes. So today's pop quiz is going to go like this. I am going to read off two celebrities, and you are going to tell me which one you think is ranked hotter according to user votes on the website ranker.com. Okay, shoot. All right, so again, remember, not what you think personally, what what you think the public thinks. Yeah, because if you ask me who I think is hot, most people are like, ugh. Yes, relatable. (laughs) Um, So we are going to be like the current day hotterornot.com right here, but we're just going to use rich or famous people. Okay, cool. Yes. All right, so number one, who do you think most people rank as hotter, Timothy Chalamet or Ryan Reynolds? Um... I mean, I personally think Timothy Chalamet, but I'm going to go with Ryan Reynolds because I feel like someone like my mom would like him. You are correct. It is Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) He came in second on the list of hottest men. Wow. I know. That's really high. And Timothy Chalamet came in at number eight. Yeah, he he seems like he's kind of, he's kind of young. He's a little baby. He's a little baby. Yes, yes, I see that. Okay, number two, Charlie Theron or Emma Stone? I'm going to go with Charlie's Theron. Okay, that's also who I would have thought, but the answer is no, it is Emma Stone. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, Emma Stone came in 16th, and Charlie's Theron came in at 36. Okay. A little low, a little low. Okay, number three is Michael B. Jordan or Harry Styles. Okay, this is a funny one because um, one of my ex's mom thought Michael B. Jordan was really cute. <laughs> um, who's ho- I mean, I think Michael B. Jordan is hotter. Is that your final answer? But I'm trying to think what other people think is hot. So Harry Styles? It was Michael B. Jordan! Damn it! I should have gone with my guy! Don't you remember when he took off his shirt in Black Panther and there were all those memes about the audience? Like, <gasps> and then having to fan yeah, themselves? It, it seems unreal, like... <laughs> Yeah, and then in that whole movie, he was just talking about direct action. Like, what's hotter than that? Honestly, okay, yeah. Honestly, I was a little bit like, yeah, I understand why he's mad. Right. I definitely was team him and not Black Panther, and I felt guilty about it the whole time, but... I mean, yeah, I... Black Panther's kind of a neo-lib. Kind of, yeah. But I mean, like, at the end, he came around. Yeah, that's Like, a little bit, but then I'm like, did they? Because it seemed like, like... Like, uh, yeah, there's a lot. This It's like, okay, it's like when I think about, like, Harry Potter, uh. Yeah. But, like, when I'm just like, why don't the wizards just share all the magic with everyone so we can live in a utopia? Like, why can't we just, like. Because muggle brain explode. <laughs> That's why. The mug, our brains, our tiny muggle brains, they, they'll explode. Right? That's what they call, they call the people muggles, right? Yes. Yes, I knew it. <laughs> Uh I saw those movies once. Uh, Okay, so Michael B. Jordan came in third on the list of hottest men versus Harry Styles, who came in at 16th. 
Wow. I, I would have thought he was higher to most people, maybe, yeah. than 16th at least. I Maybe it's just because I think, was he in One Direction? Was he in one of those groups? I don't. No, I think. He was in one of them. Uh, and now all I know is that he wears nice outfits. Yeah, like, uh... Good but f- I assume someone else picks the nice outfits out. I mean, he must like them if he wears them. He has to approve them, probably, yeah. Okay. We got two more of these. Okay. Okay, you're warmed up. All right, number four is a difficult one, I think. It is Natalie Portman or Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway was in, like, what was... Uh, the Princess Diaries. Uh, Devil Wears her? Prada. Devil Wears Prada. Yes, I think that's her. Oh, and then who else again? And then Natalie Portman. I'm going to say Natalie Portman. It is Anne Hathaway, ranked 10th, versus Natalie Portman coming in at 76th. Wow. Right? Okay, I'm bad at this. I mean, I was really shocked by that one as well. Okay, and then last is... Oh my gosh, I can't, I'm just realizing I can't pronounce this man's name. Idris Elba? Idris Elba? Idris Elba. Okay, thank you. Oh, he's so, so Idris he's Elba. So hot. <laughs> or Paul Rudd. Also very hot. But I gotta think about who other people think is hotter. Yes. Oh, I don't trust myself anymore. Uh, Paul Rudd? shockingly it is paul rudd oh yes. my god he doesn't he's like keanu reeves he doesn't age that's true he does not age he is ranked uh number 12 and idris elba came in at 36th which i found shocking because he was named the hottest man in the world or something by yeah, one magazine he's, yeah i mean very conventionally it feels weird commenting on people <laughs> like I know. they're like I know. like they're trading cards they're slabs <laughs> of meat cannot <laughs> yeah. but it's like yeah but I mean, in my mind, I mean, oh, I can't, I can't choose. <laughs> I'm like both. <laughs> okay, so do you want to take a stab at who this list says the hottest celebrities are for men and women? Like ranked number one, number one boy, number one girl. I mean, boy, like fucking Brad Pitt. Okay, and who do you think the girl is? Uh, girl. Um, I also like that I'm calling them boy and girl because it's very infantilizing and kind of the gender division is infantilizing. Um, I don't know why, but the first thing that came to mind was Jennifer Lopez. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, but, um, okay. I, I feel like J-Lo's a very 2003 pick. <laughs> That's a, yeah, very like, like... Oh, oh, I remember her. Okay. You can tell like how long I've been out of the celebrity loop. <laughs> Um, J-Lo. <laughs> I mean, I want to just say, like, Jennifer Aniston because, like, oh she's Oh, my God, an old... also an old pick. <laughs> I know. Wait, hottest now. Uh, Kim Kardashian? Okay, so number one on the list is Chris Hemsworth. Oh, oh, Thor. Thor. It's a little shocking to me, but okay. Okay. He seems, uh, I'm sorry, he's just. Mm, yes. And Scarlett Johansson. Really? Oh, both Marvel characters. Both Marvel characters. A lot of Marvel characters on this list, actually. Maybe that's why they made so much money. Maybe. Also, very Aryan, the number one choice. I was actually just thinking that. Very white people, blonde hair, I assume light eyes, but I have not stared into the depths of Scarlett Johansson or Chris Hemsworth's eyes. Chris Hemsworth has blue eyes. I mean, it feels like that would check out with what I know about American beauty standards. Yeah. Uh-huh. This actually makes total sense. Um, 
where I like in my because I'm like it's J Lo. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that dates me. I mean, I don't even know what J Lo looks like. I mean. I, you know what? We were okay. We, me and my boyfriend went down this rabbit hole where we watched all the commercials for now. That's what I called music from the beginning to the 13th. And we were enthralled and JLo was on all of them. And I'm like, JLo is such a hot woman. Okay. I get it. Um, what was like a JLo song? I don't even remember. Even if you were broke, my love don't cost Oh, that was JLo? So many good songs. I uh, are like waiting for tonight. Oh, oh I remember that one because there was the music video and she was in the jungle and it was raining at night. Yeah. Yes. I, and then there was like a, maybe a pop up video about yeah. it. Yeah. And then there's Jenny from the block. Yes. 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 Okay. I'm remembering. I'm remembering. <laughs> um. So these lists, they're always really interesting to me personally because uh, I usually have a pretty hard time understanding how other people perceive attractiveness. I usually just go off people's personal sense of style and their attitudes. So just like staring at a random person, usually who's famous for acting also, meaning you get zero sense of who they are and just trying to decide if they're hot or not. That's like a real challenge. Okay, so I have failed at this my whole life and I don't know if it's just my brain or not where people like all through my life have been like, like that person is really hot. And I'm like, if you say so. Like to me- like, I, like, I'm, like, everyone looks the same to me. Like, when people would be, like, I mean, there were boys who I had crushes on, but usually um, it was because they had cool style. Yeah, their outfits. Their little outfits are what yeah. make them cute. Yeah, because I'm, like, the, the, the people that I had crushes on, like, all dressed really good and had good shoes. That is actually what I, I don't look at the face. I look at the shoes. Yeah, no, I'm very, I think we're very, very relatable. Yes. yes. I have no idea what people actually look like. I also, though, have shockingly poor facial comprehension skills. You do. So you might have that as well. I hate to break it to you. I, there is something going on because it's, it literally was like, I had to be told by people as an adult being like, that person is hot. And I'm like, okay. So I had to learn. Yes. Yeah. I told you once I dated a man just because everybody around me kept talking about how hot he was all the time. And I did not think he was hot at all. And I I was literally with him. And I was like, really? And everyone's like, so hot. The hottest man ever. And I was like, okay, if you say so, I guess I can't squander this opportunity, you know? But I never got it. I never came yeah, around. Yeah, I feel like I'm the same way, too, where people would be like, oh, look at that guy. He's so, like, he's so hot. Or, like, look at that person. They're so hot. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. And I'm like, but what are they wearing? Yes. <laughs> Well, if I had to choose the hottest celebrities, just to me personally, uh, I would choose Jason Schwartzman and Zoe Kravitz, I think. And neither of them even made the top 100 hottest celebrities list on Ranker. Yeah. Okay. This is just for pure personality sync because I just saw this video of him in the 90s, Keanu Reeves being like, like, what kind of, like, I hear you're single. What kind of girl are you looking for? And he's like, all women are angels. Aww. Yeah, so it's probably Keanu Reeves because yes. he has an amazing personality and he, he like does. does good. He dates women his own age. Like yes, he does all the donating of the money. Yeah, so yes. I that is very hot to me. And he has fun street style. And also, if you ever watch my own private Idaho, oh my god, I haven't seen that in a while. I should. Oh my that. gosh, it yeah, so good. And <laughs> um, uh, for ladies, uh, I. When I was, like, in middle school, I caught a late night 
showing of Heather's that was just playing on TV. And I'm just like, Shannon Doherty is so fucking hot. Oh, this is why you think Shannon Doherty is hot. Yeah, Heather's. She is hot in Heather's. Yeah. yeah. She has very hot girl energy all the time, though. I was like, about. oh my gosh, like, Shannon Doherty. Like, yes. Or maybe, like... Very but, hot in mall rats, also. But also, and then I was like, uh, okay, I think it's only um, people in teen movies. Like, I was like, Rose McGowan in Jawbreakers, very hot. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, what's her face in Jennifer's body? Uh, Megan Fox. Megan Fox. So I'm like, you have to be mean. Uh, and I guess J-Lo. I guess. And J-Lo. Because I've, I've been thinking a lot about J-Lo. <laughs> I feel like there was someone else, too, uh, that I can't remember. I but- think the thing about choosing celebrities, even from the jump, is that you're, like, cutting out a lot of different type of people because most celebrities are just skinny white people. Yeah, it's just, like, conventional stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like... In real life, though, like, to me, it's, like, that, like, as soon, it's it's all about what you say when you open your mouth. Yes, for sure. Okay, so I was thinking about all of this. Um, who's hot, who's not, as Fred Durst said in the lyrics to Show Me What You Got off of Limp Biscuit's 1999 album Significant Other, which I stuck in there just for you, Kenna. Also I know, a hottie. I know you think Fred Durst is hot. Uh, and it led me to today's topic, which was actually recommended by our Patreon subscriber, Echo Dunn. And it is beauty standards. Oh. So just a warning going into this. Um, generally, we will be talking about the sizes of people's bodies. We will be mentioning eating disorders. We will be referencing all of the weird shit that can very easily make us all feel gross in our own skin sometimes because society is generally awful. So if that sounds like something you might not want to hear today, we get it. And uh, it might be a good episode for you to skip. But if you are still with us. Um, we're going to get into what the beauty standards are today in the United States where we live. Yeah. So what do you what do you think they are, Kenna, if you were to describe it? It's funny because I feel like actually you were talking to me where like the beauty standards are like, what would sell a bottle of shampoo? Yes. Where it's like also like, uh, you know, conventional, like I think of like uh, conventional like American beauty standards, which were also pretty racist, like tall blonde skinny pale yes like or fair like um like maybe long hair like yeah it'd be like a conventional but like that's maybe also from the 80s and 90s from like or like you know 60s 70s but I feel like conventional beauty standards I think of as like what is in magazines and in advertisements. Yeah, what those ladies look like that Fox News puts on the air to say all the weird racist shit. Yeah, they're like all, they're all like... Uh, Republican Barbie doll. Yes, they're all blonde. They yes. all have the same shade of blonde, too. Okay, I know you don't watch The Bachelor, but also when you mentioned the hair, all the girls on The Bachelor have the same hair. Really? Yes, they all have this hairstyle. I Somebody actually wrote an article about it, like, called The Hair, where they identified it. It's, like, this hairstyle that's, like, a center part with, like, long waves that frame the face, but it's, like, identical. So if you watch TV, this is, like, the only hair women have on television right now at all um this reminds me of that show this 
awful show from the like late 90s i think the peak of like uh like reality tv when it first came out they're like any show that's a reality show will make a ton of money called the swan oh yeah we talked about this in our reality tv episode yeah where they make supposedly i'm using air quote ugly women into quote swans yes this episode is called show me the money if anybody wants to listen to it Yeah, but basically what they do is just they give them all plastic surgery and boob jobs and give them the same hair. (laughs) They all dye their hair blonde. Yeah. And give them like, I think in this, the style was like kind of a poof in the back. Oh, yeah. This was the era of the bump it. Kind of like a bump it style. Like kind of the beginnings of a Karen haircut as we know it. Oh, yeah. But like, but I was just like thinking of like, yeah, because they, you know, they have to make them into quote unquote like swans, like beautiful women. So, but they just give them all the same hair. And, like, this. There's only one acceptable hairstyle for women to have in any era, in every generation. A slayer is not born, but a hairstyle is born. <laughs> That's for the Buffy fans. Um, so when I was trying to think about this before I started doing any research, I thought that the mainstream beauty standard was pretty similar to you. I was like, okay, they're thin, they're white, they're tall, they have symmetrical faces, uh, small noses, large lips, higher cheekbones for feminine people, like delicate chins. Because I remember when we did our dating episode, uh, we figured out that men with a lot of testosterone liked women with small jaws which was just really that's really funny i i would not i would not be that demographic yeah so (laughs) delicate chin small forehead round face was what i thought and then for masculine people i was like oh it's probably more like chiseled looking in the face maybe like a strong brow and then also maybe um well, obviously super buff because you know in all those Marvel movies when the men take off their shirts, they dehydrate them for days. Yes. So they look buffer. Yeah. Uh, I was like, someone was telling me, oh, like someone who I was like, okay. They were like, yeah, uh, have you heard about the movie 300? So, so cool. Like they worked out like every day on set and they didn't drink any water and worked out like eight hours a day. And that's why they're so veiny. And I was like, <laughs> didn't they like pass out on set? Yeah, it's it's really dangerous, and that's, like, for men in these movies, they have to be so dehydrated. And I was just, like, it made me thirsty just thinking about it. I was, like, all these poor, like, actors, like, and, like, stunt people who have to do all the stuff, and I'm just, like, ugh. Yes, well, that, I think, is the man, like, the dude beauty standard. It's, like, so buff, you can't drink water tall chiseled and then we also know this from our episode on love and dating because we learned so much on the show uh tattoos because remember like every woman wants to date a guy with tattoos uh i am indifferent yeah i'm i it could go either way i'm fine yeah i'm just like me i'm indifferent but you know me i'm indifferent about tattoos in general i don't have any yes i remember because we were plotting if you were to get one (laughs) and i'm like maybe but i don't i live i feel like if i feel nothing about a subject like, I should just not do it. That's me with kids. That's me with having kids. <laughs> also, I wish I'd felt that way about my tattoos because I hate all of my tattoos now. So you're that, smarter. I think that all tattoos are cool unless they're, like, you know, obviously naughty. Right, 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 right. Yes. I have no slurs. We're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, what we came up with as our definitions for beauty standards are pretty on point, I think, with, like, standard Western perceptions of beauty. Like, descriptions of the Western beauty standard online usually include women who are tall, slender yet busty, that's a verbatim quote I read somewhere, Okay. Uh, have delicate facial features, small waists, and somebody said, um, 
perky butts. So not big butts necessarily, but perky butts. Okay. Yeah, I know. Very, very specific language here. Slender yet busty, perky butt. And recently it seems that maybe two distinct beauty standards have emerged in the United States where we are. So there's that one that is kind of old school, the, the tall, fair, thin one that's been our beauty standard for a while. But then also maybe we have a more tanned, hourglass, curvy beauty standard that's maybe like ethnically ambiguous. Like if you were to imagine Kendall Jenner versus Kim Kardashian. Yeah. I could see those being our beauty standards right now, both at the same time. And both of them seem to rely heavily on the idea of what men find attractive in women. Right? So one is like, you look like a high-end fashion model. And the other is like, you are just so hot, I'm going to lose my mind, like from a sexualized perspective. Right? And for facial beauty, we touched on this in our dating episode, but people usually respond really well to like average looking faces. Like if you took a group of faces of random people, then average the features out, most people would agree that face is like more attractive the the averaged one than the individual faces were, which is pretty interesting. Huh. Yeah, so people just like like for faces, we like things that are easy to process on our brains. They feel comfortable, they feel normal, they don't stand out too much. And then for bodies, we want, you know, the body standards that our society and media has idealized in one capacity. Either like high-end fashion magazine, your fancy body, or I think just like, like really, really hot. Like this is a hot person, like sexy, super sexy body. Mm. Um, and there was also this like one study where they figured out that for optimum attractiveness, the distance for your face, this is like what makes the most like average to nice looking face for our brains. The distance between a person's eyes and mouth, like vertically, needs to be 36% of the total face length. And then the distance between your two eyes should be 46% of the face width. And I just thought that was really funny because it's like so specific. And the study also acknowledged that changing your makeup or hairstyle will create optical illusions that can make these distances look different than they are, which is why some people feel like they look more attractive with certain hair lengths and haircuts. Yeah, I um, have felt that way in the past where I'm like, I can't have short hair. Interesting. Because I'm like, then it, then it, uh, then my face is too round. But then that's, you know, that's me. That's yeah, me it's being, all subjective. But um, that is so, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's so interesting it's really interesting and i'm guessing this this is for like like america this what? is in the united states where yeah. we are right now yes i think it's also interesting that the beauty standard that i think of as being the more hyper sexualized one which is like the kim kardashian look that's the one that is more closely associated with maybe not having super pale skin like you're tanned you're at like maybe maybe you're not white ooh you know and it's like in this weird racist colonial ownership and like entitlement to sexualization way yeah it's like um it's uh, <clears throat> on another note it's funny to me how um especially some uh you'll i feel like you'll see comments or like i've heard dudes comment be like oh like makeup i don't like when like like when women wear too much makeup but then like like if you don't wear makeup like guys are like oh what's up with your face yeah yeah men or like men like the makeup that they can't tell is a lot of makeup but is actually a lot of makeup yeah or like I, I've been thinking about those tiktok videos where you see someone who's just like no makeup and then they put on makeup and you're like I literally 
feel like you put on someone else's face. Like, yeah, you just I think did that's a hand. so cool. And then people in the comments are like, you're catfishing. I'm like, no, everyone, like, everyone does something to make themselves look a little different. Yeah, for sure. And it's such a skill when people are like, I can make my face look like anything. You're like, you are so talented. That's like, that is so, so cool. cool. Like, I wish, because I'm like, that's like having a skill, like, when you think of, like, a Renaissance painter. Like, or, like, when people like can paint like perfectly just from like sight and you're just like 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 a photograph you're like oh my god like that is so cool I wish I could do that it's really cool um an interesting thing though is like even with these beauty standards that we all kind of think of and we're like yeah that sounds about right um Diana Vreeland who's a consultant at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York says faces go in and out of fashion just like anything else would so I believe that because like you know when you look at like the 20s there's almost like a round face with the like cupid doll lips. It's like a very It's Clara Bow. Clara Bow. It's a very round face. Mm-hmm. Like now like isn't it funny too, like when we see people who are like, that person looks like they're from the sixties. Or that yes. person looks like they're from the fifties. Where it's just like I cause I feel like, yeah, like fifties was like kind of more like pointed jawline, like not as not as round. Like like if you think of like like Barbara Lee or something. Yeah, and then like the 80s, I feel like was a more like chiseled cheekbone. The cheekbones. Yes, more chiseled. Well, today's fashionable look is definitely that Kardashian effect, right? Which experts say um, most people actually need surgery to achieve. So in the U.S., 4.2 million cosmetic operations were performed in 2016 alone. And the most popular ones were boob job, a.k.a. breast augmentation, and liposuction. Huh. Yeah, people in the U.S. um, usually choose to make their butts bigger, their boobs bigger, and their lips bigger. And they choose to minimize their waist, legs, and arms in surgery practices. And when surveyed, 40% of women said that they were open to the idea of getting cosmetic surgery to more closely match the beauty standard. uh, Which is about, for the record, twice as many men. Huh, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, so 20% of men were open to it, 40% of women. And yeah, it does totally make sense because um, you have to consider that like 72% of women feel pressured socially to be beautiful and only 4% of women think of themselves as already being beautiful. Whoa. Very low. That's, that's wild to me because it's like, a lo- I mean like a lot of people, I mean like 4%, what? Yeah, I know. I, I, I mean, to me, that's just like, it's, I mean, it's like. Because society doesn't want you to look, if you, if, if everyone thinks they look great, you don't need to buy fucking shampoo or yeah. makeup. Nobody has to sell you shampoo, so you don't <laughs> care about looking like the shampoo lady. Yeah, this all came up because I told one of our friends once that there was nothing punk about being attracted to people just because they look like the girls who sell you shampoo in magazines. <gasps> that was like, when I was like, your criteria, what is your criteria for dating? And it turned out his criteria for dating was that they all had to be 5'11 and wear a size zero. And I was like, that is, you are very narrowing your dating pool. Like, that is, if it happens, that's fine. But to only seek that out seems weird. He sounds cool. (laughs) So, according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, Americans spent over $16 billion from 2018 to 2021 on cosmetic surgery. And from 2018 to 2019 alone, the number of liposuction procedures increased 3%, eyelid surgery increased 2%, and Botox injections increased 4%. 
And the cosmetic surgery industry in the United States is only loosely regulated. I bet. Have you ever seen the show Botched, Kenna? No. Oh, okay. So I got obsessed with Botched this one weekend when I went to Tahoe with my boyfriend and my best friend. Um, but they're like really into snowboarding and I just barely learned how to get off the ski lift. So I only went with them one day and then I didn't want to slow them down. So they just went out the other days and I just stayed behind and watched Botched by myself. Nice. Um... I don't know why the show appealed to me, but it was really interesting. They talk about on that show how under current federal regulations, anyone with like an MD can perform cosmetic surgical procedures, whether or not they've been trained or board certified by any particular set of skills. So there are different qualifications to become like a cosmetic surgeon versus a plastic surgeon. And the differences are really, really extreme. See, a board-certified plastic surgeon requires at least six years of residency training, but a board-certified cosmetic surgeon only needs, like, one year of training. And that's why so many people end up with complications from plastic surgery, like paralysis, chronic pain, infection, and even death. All in all, uh, 91% of women are unhappy with their bodies, and if they don't resort to plastic surgery, they often resort to dieting to achieve their ideal body shape. And out of those women, more than one-third of the people who admit to what they call normal dieting, in air quotes, will merge into pathological dieting. And roughly one-quarter of those will suffer from a partial or full-on eating disorder. Mm. Additionally, only 5% of women naturally possess the body type often portrayed by America, like in the media. What? 5%? Yes, it's a very uncommon body type to have, which is why I told that guy that if he was only going after the shampoo ad girls, he was really limiting the number of people he would date. Because it's very rare. I mean, I believe it just from anecdotal evidence. Yeah, what's also interesting is we live in Los Angeles, so people who have that natural body type often, if they're born in the United States, they'll go to LA or New York because they know they can make money as a model or an actor or some sort of, like, entertainer just because their look is unusual. So I feel like here in LA we see it more often because people have flocked here specifically because they see an opportunity to monetize it because it's rare. Yeah, but even still. Yeah, it's it's very rare. And what's really interesting to me is remember how only 4% of women think of themselves as beautiful? Mm-hmm. Well, 5% of women look like how the ads look. So that means that even if you have the body, the media is telling you, like, this is the right one to have, you're still probably going to feel ugly. I mean, not probably, but one percentage of difference in between those. That makes me think of, like, like when you hear of, like, supermodels in the 90s talking about, like, their time being supermodels, being like, I don't even know why anyone, like, everyone was telling me that I still didn't look great enough. And I was just like, damn. Yeah. Like, like this is how you, like... Like, make your money off of this. So you know you, like, like with money, it proves that you look good. And people, you still don't. Yeah, you're so, fitting the beauty standard. People are paying you to fit the beauty and standard. And somebody's still telling you it's not good enough. Yeah, that's awful. Yes. And one study of 1,000 Americans described the perfect woman as being. Okay, this one cracks me up, Kenna, because let me know if this sounds familiar to you at all. Five of five, 128 pounds with a 26-inch waist. Okay. I feel like that's you. (laughs) (laughs) I only know that because we work in fashion, so I know everybody's size in the office to try things on them. I don't think I have a 26-inch waist anymore. Oh, okay, okay. We've been going to the gym. We've been making gains. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, basically. We've been getting buff. (laughs) I think, okay, my size and pant has changed, but it's like the butt area. 
So it's like I have to change the the pant in the butt area. <laughs> it's very very funny. Yeah. But okay, so not current kind of size, but this size is actually pretty rare. Like five foot five, one hundred twenty eight pounds, and a twenty six inch waist. Like most people are not going to be able to even achieve that. And five foot five is a lot shorter than the models we see on you know on runways or in fashion magazines. They're all like five nine or above five ten taller i remember cara delavine was like i'm a short model because i'm like five seven right so five five when people are describing what the ideal woman looks like in the united states they're even going not as extreme as our beauty standard and even the not extreme one that people think they're giving that is totally extreme for most women and not achievable at all because that's like a pretty petite person And all of this stuff comes with consequences, like the fact that that's how we perceive people to be attractive and it being such a narrow scale. And some of those consequences just right out of the bat. Like if you're in court, attractive people are found guilty less often. Wow. And if you are found guilty as an attractive person, you receive less severe of a sentence. Wow. Um, Attractive children are more popular, both with classmates and teachers. And teachers give higher evaluations to the work of attractive children and have higher expectations of them, which has been linked to increased and improved performance. Huh. Uh, The bias for beauty operates in almost every single social situation you enter, and all experiments show that we react more favorably to physically attractive people. I mean, I fucking totally agree. I feel like I've seen it firsthand. Yeah. I mean, I know this firsthand because, like, I had... uh, it was like pretty normal you know and then overnight I got a wild skin disease where it looked like I had been like burned like on my mm-hmm. face basically and how people treated me differently like it was very I very much noticed it was like instant it was very instant interesting yeah we also have this like stereotyped belief that what is beautiful is good which is totally irrational but it is actually a deep-seated belief that physically attractive people possess other desirable characteristics like intelligence competence social skills confidence even moral virtue like if you think about how we talk about like i don't know storybooks for example like a good fairy or princess is always beautiful and the wicked witch is always ugly right yeah Where it's like, I feel like how people look literally has nothing to do whether they're nice or not. No, it has nothing to do with it at all. I mean, it could be like people are nicer to nicer looking people. So maybe like nicer looking people are nicer because they're getting treated nicer, but only because of how they look. Yeah. And also they're going to have better self-esteem, which means they're going to have more confidence and they're going to be less susceptible to like anxiety or depression setting in. Or like people who don't have the conventional beauty standards could actually be like overly nice and overly funny, you know, like funny and like, you know, really have to try harder in social situations to make up for that fact that they don't fit the conventional beauty standard. So people are prejudging that. Yeah. So it's like so much mental energy. Yeah. I also think that like, if I was going to land on a stereotype, like maybe it's just the era we grew up in, but all of the hot people in nineties teen movies were assholes. Yes. Or like the, the, like basically the, like the hot, I'm using air quote, Abercrombie dudes were fucking assholes yes so we grew up in an era where hot equaled awful yeah like it yeah you're like the hot people they're jerks yeah they're jerks you want to stay away from them that's that's the bias we grew up with (laughs) so like 
obviously this is just in the United States. And although there are some common features across many cultures, for the most part, beauty standards vary from place to place, uh, which is how we know that our society is kind of what makes us stuff all up, right? Like Bruce F. Norton is a political science professor at American University, and he says, what is considered a beautiful face is often influenced by what's going on in society. So let's take a look at beauty standards around the world. But please bear in mind here that I am painfully American and I am not very well traveled. I've never left North America. So I do throughout this try to reference people's own explanations of their cultural experiences with beauty, but obviously beauty standards can feel subjective. We all might have slightly varying ideas of them, even within similar communities. This is all gonna be super generalized info and people within those communities will have a much better and more nuanced and smarter understanding than I can ever hope to articulate. So with all that said, we're gonna start with Europe because that felt the safest to me. It's pretty <laughs> similar. So theirs are probably the closest to ours in terms of beauty standards, right? Because Europe did this to the United States. And by this, I mean us had people like my ancestors come here to what they called the new land, the Americas, and just horrifically colonize it and commit genocide. Um, so they did all that so they could kind of make baby Europe 2.0 for some reason. They a thought baby. that was necessary. Yeah, like, I love to think <laughs> calling America baby Europe. <laughs> it is. We're baby Europe. It was awful. It was <laughs> fucked up. Um, so for whatever the case, white people are here too now. So our... Papa Land probably got some pretty similar white people beauty standards, I'm guessing, right? So starting off um, with France, which we had to start with because I took a 23 in me and regretfully learned that I am mostly French in my la DNA. La. <laughs> beauty standards are more receptive to what is considered unconventional beauty there, but like only within a pretty narrow scope, right? So they favor unique and distinct features that people are naturally born with that kind of make them stand out a little keyword a little. So beauty experts in France emphasize low maintenance beauty, including natural faces and easy hairstyles and long eyelashes and what they call rosy lips. However, despite this low maintenance reputation, plastic surgery is still pretty common in France. According to the most recent global aesthetic survey released by the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, breast augmentation, boob job is the most popular cosmetic surgical procedure in France, which I would not have guessed. Yeah. <clears throat> because you and I work in fashion and we like think about trends a lot, I just want like I wonder what the trends are in like boob sizes because sometimes it seems like big, big is in, and then later it'll be like no, like like small is in, and yes. then like I feel like we're in a big is in right now again. Big really? is back. Big is back. Okay. I think big is back. I feel like for a while it was like, no. Yes, no I agree. I agree. Because I talk about this a little bit later, but like when we were growing up, big. Pamela Anderson, big, right? And then we kind of entered like the 2010s and it was like, no, no boob. And then now it's like a big again. Yeah. So everybody's wow. getting the boob jobs and the augmentations. I just feel like the second I, like, not that I would, but if I did, the second I changed them, then I'd be out of fashion and I'd be like, no, get me back in fashion. Yes. <laughs> um, another really common one in France is also eyelid surgery. That's actually the number one facial cosmetic operation that happens there. And also things that are like injectables, which aren't surgical procedures, but like fillers and Botox, which are pretty common in the United States. They're also really common in France. Um, wait, what is eyelid surgery? Um, okay, so I have a couple different definitions of eyelid surgery, but I'm going to look it up just to make sure that what I understand it to be is correct because 
I do not know. I have never heard of anyone getting eyelid surgery until now. Yes. Okay, so there are a couple different kinds. So in France, the one they're probably doing is the one that removes... Okay, so as your eyes age, sometimes the muscles above them lose kind of tension. And I know this because one of my eyes has started to droop more than the other one as I get older. So one of the muscles is losing... It's like elasticity. I don't think muscles have elasticity, but it's like strength whatever it's called, like more than the other. Oh. So you can get eyelid surgery to correct things like that. You can do like little eye lifts, for example, to make your eyes appear more open if the skin's been kind of folding. Sometimes it can actually have like medical benefits, like if you're having trouble seeing when that happens. Huh. So basically just as you get older, the skin around your face kind of falls and an eyelid surgery can kind of cut off some of the excess or falling and kind of make your eyes look more alert and open. Interesting. Yes, but there is a different type of eyelid surgery that happens a lot in some Asian countries that we'll get into later which is a little different but I want to read that from the perspective of people who live there because it's a very specific thing that I don't really know much about as a white person um there's also like this thing about France that I thought was interesting and worth including and it's that French women are considered the most underweight of all women in Western Europe um huh yeah so the beauty standard there is to be very thin like very very thin you know what? That that makes sense because I feel like for a while in the 90s, you'd see all these like weight loss books that was like, eat like a French lady. And it'd be like, just have like, it would be like, have a baguette. <laughs> <laughs> have a baguette and some wine. Yes, wine. You're right. I totally, this is like a thing in the 90s. So it was like, be French, drink wine, don't eat. Ha ha. And you're just like, wow, this sounds really, really dangerous. Okay. I, yeah. Or I don't know what the French, but there were a lot of like, oh, French ladies. Yes. So another thing that happened in Europe isn't like necessarily a current beauty trend, but it was so influential throughout like all of like white Western ideas of beauty that I definitely had to include it. And it was ancient Greece. Really? Yeah. So from 500 to 300 BC, the ideal woman in ancient Greece uh, was like described as plump and full bodied. Uh, right we hear this a lot I think and around this time in Greece actually more emphasis was placed on men's bodies like men actually had higher standards of beauty than women which I think is oh yeah if you see all the like if you ever go to a museum like if uh what's the like Greek Roman museum that's like out by the beach it's like it's like the Getty Villa oh yeah yeah yeah. so it's like uh, uh for people who don't know it's like a recreation of like Greco Roman villa it's really cool but like all the dudes in the paintings are just jacked. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're dehydrated for sure. They're so jacked. And like, there's a lot of emphasis on the male body. Yeah. But you know what's interesting is like, everybody always says that during this time, like the, the, the woman's form, it was plump, it was rotund. But when you look at those same statues of women from that era, they're like pretty like thin still. It's not, they're not actually very... You know, it's not, like, a very, like, diversified view of beauty. Yeah. They're pretty, like, average but muscular bodies, i Maybe, like, a, a butt? Yeah, or, like, they have, like, a, a small tummy, you Yeah. Know? Yes. Obviously, actually, plump or fat people did exist throughout all of history, right? There was a little dip during the Victorian era or the eras of industrialization um, because it turns out we were all malnourished and dying when they started putting us in factories and making us work 100 hours a week without adequate pay. So big surprise, right? But aside from like the era of like rapid industrialization, 
people used to be like healthier overall because they just had access to food and could eat when they needed to. And so, yeah, we had people in all their natural varying body types and sizes all throughout history. Then in kind of the Victorian industrialization kind of years that stopped and everyone got really, really small and we kind of shrank. And now we're growing back again. Now that food's more abundant and bountiful and we're not dying of malnutrition and we actually can be the sizes we were supposed to be. But if you think about like Victorian clothes, how they were so small. Oh, so tiny. So tiny. We know this because we work in vintage. Like the further back in years you go in vintage clothing, it seems like people got tinier and tinier. And it was actually somebody online told me like, oh, you should look up what sizes people were before industrialization. It'll blow your mind. And I looked up historical records and we were the same size kind of that we are today before industrialization started. Whoa. So industrialization wrecked us because it was torturing us basically and oh. we couldn't afford to live. Yeah. Oh. Or eat or be healthy or be okay. So oh. aside from that, they, they needed a lot of baguettes. <laughs> so besides that era, like all throughout history, people have been pretty much the same size unless there was like a major kind of you know, economical or like socio-political event that like interfered with people's abilities to live their normal lives, which the industrial revolution actually was one of those things. So whatever, most historians think that like, if you were to be fat in ancient Greece, it would have been a sign of like wealth and prosperity. But other beauty standards around the time might have included things like facial symmetry, which we still have today, obviously, in lots of places. Um, but facial symmetry would have been emphasized by things like unibrows. Oh. And there's a few times when unibrows were considered like a sign of beauty. Um, you know, they were symmetrical. They signified purity, apparently, in ancient Greek culture. And sometimes people would even draw on unibrows with black powder. Ooh, I'm going to tell my boyfriend that. <laughs> Also during this time, we saw the idea of beauty really start to get studied. And people were trying to represent beauty through the golden ratio. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. They teach you that in, like, design class. Yeah, I never learned that, but it's, like, the spiral thing, right? Yeah, it's, like, the spiral thing. And, like, yeah, when I took, like, a graphic design class in college, they'll be like, this is the ratio. This is what your eye wants. And we're like, okay. Yeah, it's, like, 1 to 1.618. Yeah. That's the ratio. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you do with it. But they were trying to use math, basically, to determine beauty through, like, facial proportions. So they divided the face into three sections. You had the area from the hairline to your eyes, like your forehead. The area from your eyes to your upper lip. That's, like, your nose region. And then the area from your upper lip to your chin. It's, like, your mouth and chin. And they determined that the ideal face was two-thirds as wide as it was high. Okay. So pretty close to round. And... Uh, Johan Winkleman, a historian who examined beauty ideals, found that Greek beauty included like a straight nose or one that fell in a slightly depressed line from its root to the forehead or a low forehead, which they thought looked very young, like youthful, and perfect eyebrows called eyebrows of grace that formed a delicate arch just over the brow bone or came together in that unibrow look. And the ideal Greek mouth was also naturally reddish, people explain, which I'm like, okay. And had a lower lip that was slightly fuller than the upper lip, pretty standard, and a chin that was round and smooth without a dimple. And on top of all of that, most important of all, was to have blonde hair. Oh. Yeah, very white people Europe things. Uh, Greek women had a pretty intense beauty routine for all of this. They had powders. They had rouge made from roots that they imported from Syria. They had black and red pencils for makeup. They had perfume. And they had white lead to hide wrinkles, which was really common. <laughs> yeah. And dye to cover gray hairs. So if you were a housewife, you could get away without worrying too much about this beauty routine because it's the Greek orator Demon Demonthenes. 
Demonthenes? I don't know. I mean, it looks like demon things, but that's way too sick of a name to like be it's real. Diampather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this dude said, a man married to have a faithful watchdog in the house, beauty and gratification of the senses came from the mistress. So basically, once you were hitched, you didn't have to worry about looking good anymore. Okay. Yeah, you could just chill at the house. There was actually this really funny story I found where some of, like, um, the younger women would be, like, super bitchy about how hot they were. Like, there's this story where they played this game called, like, Follow the Leader or something like that where people would take turns being in charge and whatever they did, everybody else had to do too. So there's this story about this really young, naturally beautiful girl at a party and she's in charge for follow the leader and she washes all of her makeup off her face and all the other women have to do it too, but she's all young and hot. So she's like, hi, I still look young and hot and you all look old and wretched. And then they have to spend the whole party looking old and wretched. It's like this wild story oh about how much they valued like youth and beauty. And I, don't, I was like, oh, shit, this is crazy. Um, also, in Italy, during the Renaissance from 1400 to 1700, the ideal woman around that time was described as having an ample bosom, a rounded stomach, full hips, and fair skin. This was kind of during like the Italian Renaissance. And a lot of the artwork showed idealized portraits of women which featured high foreheads, blonde hair, pale skin, long necks, and high hairlines, which were sometimes achieved like IRL by plucking your hairline to make it look like it just started higher up. Oh, wow. And it would also have the added benefit of kind of thinning out your hair because like thin, thin hair was attractive. All I'm picturing is the guy from Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) Which I mean, I'm like, that was the Italian Renaissance beauty standard. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense because like all the like, I feel like when you see, like, the Renaissance paintings, like, all the women look kind of the same. Yeah. I feel like you could say that about any place in their beauty standards and time in the media that's that comes true. out of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, in England, um, that's, that's, if we're baby Europe, England is father England, I think. <laughs> I thought um, it was mommy England. <laughs> mommy mother England. Yes. So England, uh, in the Middle Ages, which was from 1200 to 1400-ish, uh, European women were all kind of expected to have that kind of fine blonde hair, which sounds creepy to me, um, as well as fair eyes. And they specified gray eyes. And I just have to level with everyone here and tell you I did not think gray eyes were real no, until they are. I learned this fact. Like, I've, have you seen someone with gray eyes? I think I have, like, a relative with gray eyes because, like, really, um, like, wild blue eyes run in my family. Uh-huh. Like, I think my grandpa had, like, almost gray eyes. And I had an aunt who had, like, violet eyes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I didn't know that was real. I've never seen that before. But apparently that was like, wow, you're really doing it in medieval England, mm-hmm. you know? So then along came the Elizabethan era around the 1500s in England and beauty standards for women included kind of like the Italian Renaissance vibes, um, dyed hair, plucked eyebrows, and lots of makeup. And one of these cosmetics at the time was again that white lead. God! I know. (laughs) And people used it to make their faces look super pale and white, which is not creepy. I'm sure that's not creepy looking. All I can picture is the scariest thing you've ever seen. But also bathing started to become popular around this time, which is exciting. And women at this time started to realize that it might be gross to have your teeth rotting out of your mouth. So they started trying to make their own tooth powders and they would make them out of honey and sugar and crushed bones and fruit peel to smear on their bad teeth. Sounds like goop. Yeah, that's some goop (laughs) shit. It is some goop shit. 
Uh, and if that didn't work, they would just literally never open their mouths. Hmm. Yeah. Um, also, there were, like, weird cosmetics, like this lotion called Solomon's Water, which had literal mercury in it. Of course. And of probably course. arsenic and... Oh, yeah. There's some arsenic coming up. Oh, yeah. God. And it was made to remove pimples, freckles, and moles. But in doing so, it would also just remove a fuck ton of skin. I was like, and skin, I'm sure. And oh, my God. skin, yeah. Um, okay, so I got really into the Reddit, uh, the subreddit, um... Uh, skincare addiction and that uh, like all because like now I know about all the ingredients and the routine for your skin and that just made me cringe inside because I was like no you gotta you gotta don't you t- use something else to exfoliate like maybe like a BHA I don't even know what that is oh my gosh what's a BHA um it's basically like chemical exfoliant um that removes the 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 dead skin cells from your face without because you don't really i have a whole th- i will go down <laughs> i will go down a rabbit hole with this but uh, i'll show you later okay okay it should be a bonus episode can it can a skincare routine oh on our my, patreon oh my god oh i'd be so into that <laughs> so at whatever rate by the 1600s uh in england cosmetics were not that far advanced um people were still making their own at home but also buying like weird things like solomon's water on the the market but all of these cosmetics had the risk of being really deadly. Like, you just didn't know what was in them and what would take you out. And one socialite in London named Maria Gunning, who was pretty popular and famous, whitened her skin for years with lead and eventually died from lead poisoning. Ugh. Then during the Victorian era from 1837 to 1901, like, an idea of a beautiful woman, that would be someone who they called full-figured, um, or they'd call it, like, desirably plump, yet with a super cinched waist, which every time I hear that like a beauty standard going on in Europe is like someone full figured or someone plump, I always look at the visuals and I'm like, oh, this is just like a thin person with tits and ass, you know? So it's not really like revolutionary like we want it to be, you know? They are just like emphasize the sex parts and make your waist disappear, which is, you know, also a very unrealistic beauty standard. And women were, like, really into shapewear to create this hourglass figure, but, like, corsets, you know? And they were so popular that if you were a girl, you'd start wearing them, like, really young. And you'd probably even wear them while you were pregnant later in life. No! Yes. And another thing that was considered beautiful would be a really pale face, because, again, classism and probably racism, since working in the sun was considered declassé and it made your skin darker. So if you were wealthy and privileged, you would never have worked in the sun and you would have really pale skin. So women at this time even poisoned themselves with arsenic and ammonia to try to look really, really pale. Oh my gosh. Also a goal of Victorian women in England was to look both seductive and innocent at the same time, which is some weird, creepy infantilization shit, I think. A weird part of this though, was to be secretive about using makeup. Like, everybody knew by now that makeup was kind of dangerous, like some some socialites were dying, it had arsenic, it had lead in it. And people also, though, associated it with sex workers. So it was very, like, um, swerfy. And there would be huge debate over if women used makeup or not. So, like, say you went to a party and you looked at somebody and they looked good. Someone else would come up to you and be like, oh, did you see so-and-so? I think they're wearing makeup. Oh, my God. Yes. I th- th- and the, uh, still happening today in the TikTok videos. Who fucking cares? I yes. mean, 
I care if you're poisoning yourself. Please don't do yeah, that. Yeah, you should not poison yourself. Hot tank, don't poison yourself. <laughs> uh, but now the beauty standard in England is actually pretty similar to the U.S., but they are maybe more obsessed with tanning than we are. And from a global perspective, we're actually kind of obsessed with tanning in the U.S. Like, we tan a lot more than average people. But in England, people today, they, like, really are into tanning. 59% of women in the UK apply self-tanner at least five times per month. What? So, yeah, like once a week or more. Whoa. And uh, the last place I had anything down for for Europe was Spain. And in Spain today, the beauty standard, shockingly, would be being thin, having fair skin, and having long hair. Huh. But unlike some of these other countries, long dark hair would be the beauty standard in Spain. Huh. Makeup, if used, would be subtle and natural, and plastic surgery is actually less popular there than in other countries. Interesting. Yeah. The the funny that okay I don't the England thing is like yeah like they're more into tanning probably because to make up for their I don't know, Victorian past. Yeah, I don't know. It's really really interesting though. Um, and what we start to see as we talk about beauty standards outside of the U.S. is that in a lot of other places people actually want to look very pale yeah it's like yeah there's so i feel like there's a lot wrapped up in that oh yeah all of the beauty standards you look at it's like even reading them you're like this is stressful because everything is rooted about like colonialism white supremacy misogyny fat phobia it's like all the bad things you're just like oh wow this is like a sandwich of awful with more awful in the middle it's you know? like a really visual representation of uh capital yeah it really is so okay aside from europe i thought we'd talk about the one other country in north america besides canada because i feel like canada is probably pretty similar to the united states I would say, I mean, yeah america jr no just kidding <laughs> to our canadian friends <laughs> undignified for all of us <laughs> look what europe created over here why so the one i was thinking about talking about is mexico obviously and there is a lot of back and forth between american beauty standards and mexican beauty standards especially in california where i grew up um but maybe like in mexico there's more emphasis on makeup as a part of your everyday look than there is here in like the greater united states so like winged eyeliner is super popular there red or bright lips and strong eyebrows um, but also it's like, you can't, I can't really tell which is influencing which, you know, because obviously in the United States, we have a huge issue with cultural appropriation of beauty trends and Mexico is the closest country to us. So it's very feasible that because we have like so many like Mexican Americans and like so much Chicano culture here that that like infiltrates all of our cultural experiences and white people see that and probably a big part white people appropriating that when it happens in the United States but also there's like a back and forth that comes from the United States exporting its media to Mexico mm. so it's like a colonial thing two ways double colonialism um, but an interesting thing that happened in Mexico with beauty standards that's worth mentioning is in 1920 there was like an indigenous rights movement that started up and it kind of shifted some beauty standards towards more indigenous ones rather than colonized ones and Frida, Frida Kahlo was like widely attributed to this movement but indigenous perspectives point out that her involvement was like complex and bordered on appropriative and I actually didn't know about this until Fernanda who works with us told me about this she was explaining because her family is Mexican and she's like oh Frida Kahlo is actually pretty problematic because she wasn't indigenous at all so her father was a German immigrant to Mexico and her mother was mixed race so her mother probably had a little bit of indigenous roots in her 
But Frida didn't have like an indigenous lived experience. However, this did not stop her from using imagery of the Tijuana, Zapotecs, and Huchitan um, people in her art, which were indigenous people. And as Yamali Habib writes in Be Latina, but that movement was a current of opinion rooted in colonialism. What it really did was to idealize the indigenous past from a white perspective and stoke the fires of pro-economic modernization nationalism. The result in the popular imagination was the co-optation and simplification of indigenous cultures to make them palatable to mestizo hegemony. And Frida Kahlo seems to be a perfect example of the ideological phenomenon of her time. So basically one of the things that she popularized is she would take like aesthetics of indigenous like Mexican culture, like especially like dresses and clothing, and she would put them into her artwork. But it wasn't like her culture or her lived experience. She was just kind of like, yeah, I'm like identifying with these indigenous Mexicans, like I'm supporting them. So a lot of people who were part of indigenous communities are like, like this borders on appropriative like this is really interesting that she somehow became like the spokesperson for like changing beauty standards in Mexico to gear towards more indigenous and less colonized when she herself was the result of colonization to some extent she was her dad was a German immigrant so very very interesting I was not aware of that until Fernanda told me about that at work and then outside of North America, if we get into South America, in Brazil, the beauty standard for women usually includes a bigger butt, right? Like, that's where we get the BBL. Oh, yeah, the Brazilian, Brazilian butt, butt lift. lift. Also, like, thicker or more muscular legs, wider hips. And in Brazil, people openly acknowledge there that being more attractive is essential in things like job hunting or securing a future. So plastic surgery in Brazil is usually free or low cost in public hospitals. And Brazil is the second most popular country for plastic surgery in the world. Whoa. The United States comes first. But the most popular procedures there um, are still the same as ours. They're liposuction and breast augmentation, but they also do a lot of tummy tucks and breast lifts. And people there talk about how they're emphasizing the need to like look to be what they consider to be like good in a bikini. So they're like, the whole thing is like, I'm on the beach. I'm going to be in a bikini. I need like the bikini body, which is like, you know, it's a really toxic idea, obviously. But an interesting thing about Brazil is because it's a tropical climate, makeup is less relevant because it's going to sweat off your face. Mm. Right? So it's like, if you ever live somewhere super hot, like you try not to wear a lot of makeup because it just comes off and it, it becomes a whole mess. So that's something that's not as popular in beauty standards of Brazil. Then in Chile, um, Ignacia Uribe says that women used to feel more pressured to be thin in order to be beautiful in Chile. But now the emphasis is moving back towards just wanting like stronger or what she calls healthier bodies. So she says to be beautiful in Chile is to be healthy. And then in Venezuela, um, breast enlargement surges are getting popular again. And lots of people, I guess, there will get them for their quinceaneras, so for their 15th birthdays. Whoa. Yeah, and it's pretty common to, like, gift somebody a gift card towards their breast augmentation or something like that. Whoa. Yeah, very interesting, right? I feel like here in the U.S., like, you might not get a boob job for your 15th birthday, but I feel like rich kids probably get nose jobs for their 16th birthday. I feel like I've heard of that from people. That, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we do something similar, just in an American way. Yeah, I'm so like, whoa, nose job when you're 16? I know, it's interesting. I mean, people can do whatever they want, but... Yeah. I When I was 16, I would have been like, car please. <laughs> so then moving out of like the Americas, if we go into Asia, Asia's obviously a huge continent. Um, but there's the cayenne people in Burma who stack brass coils around their neck to lengthen their necks, which is considered part of the beauty standard there. 
and also there's conflicting information about if it's just like an optical illusion that makes your neck look elongated or if it actually does have an effect of like stretching your neck out at all i, mm. I found conflicting information then in Iran, uh, beauty emphasizes having dark features, sculpted cheekbones, defined eyebrows, winged eyeliner, and matte lips. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makeup part sounds like how I do my makeup. <laughs> I have never been to Iran though, but that is very interesting. So I, I felt an affinity with that one um, as a white person, which I probably should not have done. But then in Vietnam, there's also the Lahui tribe and they paint their teeth black to symbolize like readiness for marriage, which is a custom that used to be popular in some other places in Asia too, including Japan at one time. Have you ever heard about that? I, I feel so. like I've heard about that. In Japan also like now the goal is to have very healthy looking skin. So it's emphasized with like sheer foundations, lightweight lip colors and super blendable cream blushes, like very like fresh looking face is like the beauty standard there. Then in Pakistan, Anna Saber explains, beauty standards that have persisted are largely rooted in colonial past where feminine beauty was defined as having fair skin, almond eyes, long hair, and a petite figure. Standards in Pakistan and America definitely vary. America has a diverse population, which means the concept of beauty is more heterogeneous. In Pakistan, there, since there isn't a lot of ethnic diversity, the yardstick for what is beautiful is fairly homogenous. Saber also explains many women have this obsession with being fair, lightening and bleaching as a multi-million dollar industry. And also that body hair is almost taboo in Pakistani culture. There's a lot of pressure on women to undergo painful and time-consuming rituals of waxing, tweezing, and threading every last body hair. Um, Saber says parts of her Pakistani culture that she like loved for beauty that don't exist in the United States as much would be things like putting almond oil in her hair to keep it like shiny and silky, as well as wearing kajal, which is black coal eyeliner that's different than the eyeliner you can find in the US because it's like more creamy. So she's, she um, I think is from Pakistan and currently lives in New York. So I found this thing of her talking about her experiences because I figure people can talk about their own understandings of their cultures, like beauty standards way better than I can, right? So she was explaining that beauty products in Pakistan are largely derived from nature, contrary to the chemicals in most products in the US. So she says natural recipes for face masks and hair products, for instance, have been passed down for generations from our grandmothers and mothers. The Western world is only now catching up with this trend with Desi products such as turmeric that are all now the rage among Hollywood celebs. When I see this, I sort of chuckle to myself because my ancestors have sworn by natural remedies for years and people are only now starting to catch on. <clears throat> so another one that I thought was interesting is Iran. This is the place too where like the US nose jobs are super popular. And people were talking about how they're like in their culture, some rich people use them as a status symbol and will even leave their bandages on longer than they need to just to be like, oh yeah, I got a nose job. That's how rich I am. <laughs> I was like, that feels like a very American thing to That's, do. Yeah. That's like a capitalism move. Uh, then over in China in the Han dynasty around 200 BC through 200 AD, the beauty standard was a slim waist, pale skin, large eyes, and small feet with long black hair, white teeth, and red lips. And that whole small foot thing was achieved usually through foot binding, which I feel like we learned about in the United States maybe growing up, foot binding. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's like a status symbol at the time achieved by trying to touch your heels and toes together and wrapping them. So kind of like corseting, but for your feet. Oh, ouch. Yeah. By the Rang Dynasty from 618 to 907, women were plucking and painting their eyebrows in dramatic contours, and they tried to make their lips look like flower petals, which sounds cute. Uh, faces were painted with red, black, and yellow beauty marks to hide imperfections. Mm. So I kind of like, that one sounded fun. I liked that one. 
I also saw something, side note, where somebody was talking about how American subculture is trying to replicate beauty standards of 1930s German cabaret. I think about that. That movie Cabaret is good. Yeah, I just remember the part where she's talking about her green nail polish. Oh, I love the green nail polish. Yes, oh, and I'm like, God. oh, maybe. It's very interesting. I, I think, like, some of these things are just interesting to think about because you can see the similarities between, like, things that kind of happen in lots of places around the world and then things where you're like, oh, that's, like, so different. Like, that wouldn't happen here where we are. And obviously it's, like, you know, it's like you you can't really have opinions about other people's beauty standards but when you look at your own beauty standards you're like oh I could see how this would be really fucked up to other people like outside of my country looking in like at the United States for example but it's so normalized to us and that's like what's interesting it's like we all have such like normalized ideas of beauties that beauty that unless you have like a distinct like personal life experience where you live in two different countries with different beauty standards and can actively compare them you might not even be aware of how your notions of beauty have been affected yeah or just uh beauty throughout history yeah like you know uh beauty you know we talked about like or you talked about like roman you know beauty standards from way back in the day versus like chinese standards from way back in history and just like if you we I think like sometimes with beauty standards like especially in the U.S. we think that they are like set in stone and they have been the same forever for everywhere because that's that's an American thing to be for like sure. oh it's the same everywhere and it's always been the same right but in reality <laughs> no it's different every single place the beauty standards change from time to time and in every single time the beauty standards change from place to place so in India um A lot of Western beauty standards also have been affected due to colonization, continuing the emphasis on slim bodies and pale skin. So Natasha Sumant explained, you need to be skinny, tall, light skinned and have long, thick hair. Skin bleaching is really common and there's an entire industry of lightening creams. Indians are discriminatory towards each other based on skin tone. There's an acceptable level of brown you can be. Light skin supposedly means you're superior and wealthy because you don't have to work in the sun. This thinking is a product of colonialism and is perpetuated by Bollywood, which idolizes light women. In the States, though, people generally aspire to be more tan. Tanning salons are just so ironic to me. When I was a kid, my mother made me body masks out of lemon and basan to remove the tans I would get from soccer practice. As a teen, I felt ugly when I was tan, and I sometimes still have to actively deconstruct this because it's so deeply ingrained. Succumbing to these beauty standards has felt restrictive to my freedom and destructive to my self-esteem. I love water sports and the beach, but I would either stop myself from doing these things or get upset if I did tan after an activity like that. Samat also explains the emphasis on hair removal in her experience. She says, in India, as in the other parts of the Middle East, being soft and hairless is a pretty common beauty norm. Having perfectly threaded eyebrows and waxed arms and legs. In the West, women don't tend to shave or wax their arms, and when I moved here from India, I always found that odd. Um... And obviously, I think it's just interesting because a lot of the things about, like, oh, like, I feel ugly because of this thing that, like, in my country, people try to look this other way. It's, like, very, it's interesting that it happens to people everywhere, you know, because here, yeah, we do try to tan, especially if you grew up, like, in the 80s and 90s, everyone was tanning all the time. And, like, you would feel, like, ugly if you were too pale. You know, people would, like, kind of shame you for being too pale. Or I was actually talking about this the other day. Like, when I was growing up, the beauty standard in the United States in the late 80s and early 90s was to have a perm. Oh, yeah. So, like, we all wanted super curly hair. But then you talk to people who grew up in the United States at different times or had different, like, ethnic or cultural backgrounds. Like, say, 
you're a black woman with super curly hair and you're like, oh, really? Because I was made to feel like shit for having curly hair here. Like I yeah. had to chemically relax my hair and straighten hair. So I think it's just like really interesting. I'm like, oh, is, is anybody winning with any beauty standard anywhere? No, because I feel like it's like, to me, it's just like another form of like control in society. Right. And obviously people who exist in more proximity to the beauty standard where they are have a lot of privilege. So some people are kind of winning, right? But it is still under the guise of this weird like capitalist patriarchal domination. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, I don't even know how you would like quantify this, but if like, like you said, in our current day, only what 5% of people meet that beauty standard. Right. I would dare to say like, throughout history like the beauty standard has not has possibly most likely not been the average like not been like or not the average but it's been like very narrow for a reason yeah I, I have some statistics coming up that are interesting but the beauty standard the representation is more narrow now than it was in decades past but we're coming out of that now within the past 20 years so it is interesting because there was a point where it kind of hit this heightened extremity like people started getting skinnier, 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 taller, taller, taller. And yep. that was like accelerated hyper mode. Yeah. And like what the mid two thousands. Yeah. Like the, and by people, I mean the, the like representatives of beauty, the beauty standard people, the, you know, the shampoo, the, sham- people. the shampoo people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Sumant though also acknowledges how American beauty standards have impacted India. She says a lot of American TV airs in India Uh, Also, everyone has access to the internet now. And so certain American standards have seeped into Indian beauty standards, especially the emphasis on being skinny. It's pretty apparent between generations. Grandparents who were born in colonial India think the younger generation is starving themselves. Past standards required women to be voluptuous with big boobs and large hips, much like the old statues you might see in ancient temples. Now, every girl is trying to look like Cara Delevingne with thick eyebrows and really skinny bodies. I've seen some people trying to look like Kim Kardashian, too. Samant also explains that a norm for beauty practices in India include practices like hair masking, putting coconut oil in your hair, or getting oil massages for, like, all people, though, no matter what your economic or social class is. And that would be pretty unique in a place like the United States where only, like, rich people, I think, would go to the spa. Yeah. I mean, I only started going to the spa in L.A. because it suddenly was affordable. Like, it's, like, weirdly affordable in Los Angeles versus other places. That's interesting. Um, also, in South Korea, the beauty standard uh, focuses more on skincare and having still, though, a clear and smooth complexion. And it still does come along with an emphasis on paler skin, just like in Western nations. Charlotte Cho did an interview with Here Magazine where she explains Korean beauty standards by saying, Korean people really value a skin-first philosophy that is figuring out the root of the condition instead of covering it up with makeup. As a result, the priority is hydrated, healthy, youthful-looking skin. As a Korean-American born and raised in California, I always felt that the skin-first mindset was so unique. In the U.S., caring for skin often isn't something that happens until the problem starts to surface, like the onset of acne or wrinkles. But that's starting to change as people gain more awareness about what makes skin healthy, thanks in part to influence from Korean skincare. In Korea, having a beauty regimen is almost like a lifestyle, and people start incredibly early as children. It's all about taking action before problems start. In Korea, caring for skin is taken for granted as part of one's overall health, like brushing your teeth. And then Alicia Loon, who owns a beauty company, explains the skin expression, as it's so often called, is all about healthy, radiant, glowing skin that looks well hydrated from within. And that's in the context of like South Korean beauty. There's also an appreciation for having little bags under your eyes or little pockets of fat. 
which makes your face look more cheerful, especially when you smile. And there's even cosmetic surgery you can get to add these little fat pockets into your face if you'd like. Cosmetic surgery in South Korea on the whole seems to be actually pretty popular. Gallup Korea found that roughly one in three Korean women between the ages of 19 and 29 said that they had already had cosmetic surgery. And one popular surgery was double eyelid surgery, which makes eyes appear larger. And another is jaw reduction to slim the chin and create a V-like face shape. There's also rhinoplasty to make the nose bridge appear higher up. And the end result is usually pretty subtle. Not like in the United States, you know, where you would want a like demonstrably different look after your plastic surgery, probably, you know? Yeah. Like a BBL is like a pretty extreme look. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. So similarly, despite not having overt colonization in Thailand, uh, the beauty standard is also pale skin, a petite body, and pronounced eyes and nose. So then in Africa, Africa is obviously huge, but um, one of the countries that people talk about a lot is a country called uh, Mauritania. And this is interesting because their larger bodied women are considered like way more beautiful and thin people are considered undesirable and just encouraged to gain weight. So being voluptuous is considered a symbol of wealth and beauty there. And like, this is really where when people say voluptuous, you look and you can be like, oh yeah, look, this is like a fat person. Okay. Like you actually see that more than like when in Greece, they're like voluptuous and you're like, yes, a size medium, you know, (laughs) In, in this country, you're like, oh no, this would be somebody we would consider like plus size in the United States. So we really do start to see like fat as the beauty standard here. There were even feeding camps they set up there to encourage young girls to gain weight, which is interesting because it's like a reversal of like the camps we have in the United States. That would never happen in America. No, we try to make people lose weight. Yeah. So in Ethiopia, also one group of people called the Afar chisel their teeth into points to symbolize beauty. And it looks uh, very cool. And this also happens with some tribes in Indonesia. Uh, In Kenya, beauty usually revolves around the idea of glamour. So like an idea of elegance is important. And there's also the Maasai tribe that engages in the practice of stretched earlobes as a marker of beauty. Then in Egypt, from like 31 to 30 BC, both women and men wore heavy eye makeup that darkened and contoured their eyelids, and hair was worn curled or in braided wigs. Um, And also in like 1292 to like 1069 BC, kind of in that range, beauty standards for women, they often revolved around being slender with narrow shoulders, high waists, and symmetrical faces. So I feel like what you see everywhere is the symmetrical faces thing. And I think that is like our brains are just like easy to look at face. But then I feel like everything else kind of can vary so dramatically from place to place. Huh. Okay, also uh, Oceania. And I want to start off by reminding everyone that I'm terrible at geography. I did not even know we have a continent called Oceania. Is so- that... Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Australia, uh, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, Fiji, the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Samoa, Kiribati, Micronesia, Tonga, Marshall Islands, Palau, Tuvalu, and Nauru. So this was like a fun discovery for me because I am apparently the epitome of an ignorant American, especially when it comes to geography. I was like, I'm sorry, the what continent? I think when I was growing up, they just taught us that it was like the continent of Australia. The same, yeah, they just said, oh, it's Australia. And we were like, uh, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, New Zealand and these other places. Right. But like, they they just were like, no, it's Australia. And you're like, okay. Which is also a very Eurocentric thing. Exactly. Because obviously Australia heavily colonized by... Papa Europe. (laughs) In Australia, um, beauty experts there report that the ideal aesthetic is like a natural and fresh-faced look, right? And also emphasis on smooth, blemish-free skin. People are really into the skin thing. 
Yeah. Very interesting. And then windswept hair. Like, you're just like, oh, I'm just on the beach. Oh, I'm just... Which is interesting <laughs> because all... I feel like all of the cities are on the perimeter of Australia now. And, like, indigenous people live in the center. So all of the beauty standards are for, like, like mirror, like, white people living around the perimeter. That makes... Yeah. Yeah, you're like, I'm on the beach. I'm white. Ha ha, fun. I guess. I don't... I've never been to Australia. I don't know. Windswept hair. Yeah. I guess... Like, beachy hair. Okay. Yeah, and then um, in New Zealand, the uh, Maori people, the beauty standard often includes face tattoos called tamoko. And for women, it would be on the lower part of the face, like your chin and your lips. And for men, it could be like your full face. And they are very nice looking. They look very cool and good. Cool. Yeah, so listening to all of these things, one of the things that really stood out to me around the planet is I feel like there's this shifting idea of health getting integrated with beauty. Like I heard a lot of people be like, healthy bodies, healthy skin. That's like something people are talking about kind of everywhere around the planet. But it seems really weird to me because it seems like maybe it's just like clever wording to try to justify these age old practices of strict beauty standards and like legitimize them to be more health focused than maybe they are. Because like what exactly is a healthy body, you know? And what about people who don't have healthy bodies? Should they just like feel like extra shit about themselves or something? I feel like health is kind of like the buzzword of beauty around the planet for 2020. Yeah, it seems very like ableist. Yeah, right. It seems a little ableist. It seems very also still just as hard to maintain because it's like as someone who like struggled with acne, like for most of my teenagers and still has acne as a 35 year old woman, like I can't just make myself not have acne, (laughs) you know, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. So it's like this interesting idea that it's all within your control if you just do the right skincare products. And I'm sure lots of people do have great success with their skincare routines and like their skincare routines. Yeah, I mean, I do, but it's also just like, it's not going to work for everybody else. And I would never be like, this is the thing to do. I'm like, yeah, it works for me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't talk to strangers about how healthy your skin is? Healthy. (laughs) I don't know if it's healthy. It's just skin. I mean, it's better than it was when I had the skin thing. Yeah, that sounds like way better. But um, honestly, my skin is better because of drugs like pharmaceutical drugs i'm like ah yes hardcore (laughs) hardcore drug use oh wait okay (laughs) yeah it's it's still very interesting to me though i feel like that's kind of like the vibe of how we talk about beauty now definitely through the health lens and it feels like maybe you're not so shallow if you say it's for health you know well the thing is i think that people say like healthy as a by proxy for thin yeah, for thin, which definitely. Is, which is not necessarily healthy. No. Also, I feel like some people say it, like, they're like, oh, we don't need to be super skinny. We just need to be healthy. But they still mean thin. They just yeah, mean a different kind but of it's, thin. It, it's not like, but if you say, like, it's not, it's like, if you say thin now or skinny, people will be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, that's a, but when they, you say healthy, they're like, of course, health. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it or all comes just, from this ignorant idea of what health is and that somehow you can tell how healthy somebody is by looking at them, which you, you can't. can't. You, you cannot cannot. tell how healthy a person is by what they look like. No. Um, so on top of like things changing around the planet, you mentioned this earlier kind of, but like beauty standards also change with each era, right? So moving back to the United States where we call home and where honestly I'm a lot more comfortable talking about beauty standards because it is very challenging to try to talk about places you have never been and experiences you don't have. So hopefully I did an okay job of representing what other people have said without, you know, me just taking their work. That was a challenge. But um, back here in the United States, I think that the biggest change for me personally in seeing beauty standards like 
evolved through my lifetime is seeing the Kim Kardashian style of beauty emerge, which feels very like structured to me. Like it's like a structured type of body, the BBL body, which usually has to be surgically engineered, like most of the time. However, I don't necessarily feel like the emergence of that hyper-structured surgical body is more damaging than the beauty standard that came before it, which was the one that emphasized being so extremely thin that everyone was just dying of eating disorders. Like, when we look back at the history of beauty standards in the U.S., it seems like we just see different types of unobtainable. Yeah. Right? So it's like you can't, like, pit them against each other and be like, maybe this one was worse for people or this one because, like, they're all just kind of weird and bad and destructive. Like, I saw somebody online be like, Okay, people love to talk about how horrible corsets were, but like was corseting in the Victoria era, how much worse for it, for people was it than, for example, wearing low-rise jeans that only came in four sizes and a crop top? Yeah, and it's like, and I think, you know, beauty standards, we, we mean like the popular, cult, like mainstream media, which is like not everybody individually. Like. Right, exactly. Um. So if we were to like start maybe in the 1920s in the United States, kind of, what do you think like the beauty standard was in the 20s? Oh, like we were talking about like Clarabeau, like with the like very, like kind of like round, like moon face, like those like really like thin eyebrows. Like I the, like those eyebrows. Like They're the, cool. Yeah, the really thin eyebrows with like, like a little nose and like little lips, like tiny lips. Yes. Yes, I, I get that. Yeah, for sure. And then it also, like, you had, like, a like a flat chest, a straight waist, and an overall boyish figure. And everything yes. was kind of androgynous. And then women even wore bras that acted almost like binders and would, like, flatten their chest. And then they would sometimes wear, like, loose clothing to make them look straight and curveless. Like, oh. loose mini dresses, oh. you know? And this kind of came along with the rising popularity of the bob haircut, which is obviously a short haircut for women, which was super new and shocking at the time. Um, Kenna, did you ever read Bernice Bob's Her Hair? No. Okay, so it's this short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's about a dorky cousin who has to spend the summer or something like that with her cool popular cousin. And the dorky cousin is named Bernice. And the, like, cool popular cousin is so mad that Bernice has to come, like, harsh her mellow, you know. She, like, got to take her around. She's embarrassing her everywhere with her cool friends. And it came out in 1920, so it was very much, like, of the era. And basically the cool cousin is like, look, if you're going to come around and harsh my mellow and hang out with all my friends, you cannot embarrass me. I am going to teach you how to be cool. So she teaches Bernice how to be cool and likable and flirty. And one of the ways that she teaches her to be likable and flirty is to make a bunch of jokes with the boys all the time. So one of the recurring jokes she gives her is about how she's going to bob her hair because it's so ridiculous in 1920. It's so extreme. Only like a feminist type of woman would do it. So she jokes with the boys like, oh, are you still going to love me when I bob my hair? Like, wait until I bob my hair. So then what starts happening is that Bernice gets so good at doing this that she becomes the more popular out of the two cousins. And the first cousin gets really jealous. So one time at this party, you know, Bernice is getting a lot of attention for the boys and she's talking about how she's going to bob her hair and they're all laughing about it. And the cousin is like, hey, you've been saying that a lot. Are you actually going to do it or what? Because I don't think you will. So Bernice is like, oh, I guess my cousin actually thinks I should bob my hair to get attention from these people. So she's like, I am. Yes, let's do it right now. And they all go to the hair salon and they all sit and watch while Bernice gets a bob. And the second Bernice's hair is cut off, she's suddenly not 
not pretty, not interesting to all of the really basic popular kids who weren't ready for this kind of flapper subculture that was emerging as early as 1920. So instantly, none of the boys like her anymore. Nobody wants to go on a date with her. No one wants to hang out with her. And um, the story ends with, you know, Bernice cutting off her sister's hair while she, or her cousin's hair while she's sleeping and taking like a carriage out of town. It, I really like the story though. I think it's a really interesting story because it touches on beauty standards and petty rivalry between women for male affection and how easy it is to manipulate boys into liking you if you want. It's like all the key points of my interest, you know? But I love it too because it really sums up like what it was like for America entering that kind of roaring 20s beauty standard and how shocking it was at the time. It'd be the equivalent of your really normal friend making a joke about getting a mohawk. Yeah, and you're like, fine, do it. Do and you're it. like, or I will. Or shaving your head, you know? Yeah, like something that people were doing for sure. But yeah, so whatever. So after the 20s died down, there was this like kind of period of beauty from the 1930s to the 1950s. And what do you think of when you think of that period, Kenna? 30s to 50s? I think of like the 1940s, like the blonde, like the blonde bombshell. Yes, 100%. Like, that was Like it. the pointy bra, the like hips you know that where you get it the 36 24 36 yes yes Marilyn Monroe yeah yes so this is totally the beauty standard that emerged at this time it was the hourglass figure it was super curvy large breast slim waist and people usually think of Marilyn Monroe as being a good example of this um have you ever seen people say that Marilyn Monroe wore a size 12 or 14 or something like that yeah I mean I wouldn't know I mean to me none of those sizes make sense because I'm from the vintage world where I I or like from the making, you know, where I'm just like, what is the actual measurement? Yes. Well, I have her actual measurements. Oh. And they were 36, 24, 34. Oh, wow. Yes. So if you flip the bust and the hip, her measurements are pretty much my measurements. Um, but she's taller than me. She's two inches taller than me. So she's skinnier than me. But just with, I have a bigger butt and she has bigger boobs. Uh, and I wear a size extra small. Yeah, it's it's so it's so um, interesting how size labels change. Yes, um, but also one dressmaker released her true measurements from like a fitting because this is just what Marilyn would write. She would write like thirty six, twenty four, thirty four as her measurements when she signed things. Um, but one dressmaker released her true measurements after working with her, and they came in at a thirty five inch bust, a twenty two inch waist, and a thirty five inch hips. So. Uh, like a size small top in today's standards, a size extra, extra small waist, and a size small hip. Huh. And again, at five foot five. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because, like, you know how Kim Kardashian wore her dress to the Met Gala? Yes. I'm just like, yeah, we're, like, I, I was, like, very petite. Yeah, so the beauty standard may have been curvier than the 1920s boyish figures were, but it actually wasn't, like, super revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, in fact, models at Marilyn Monroe's time usually had an average of a 25-inch waist, so she was actually skinnier than other models throughout most of her career. Wow. Just with a little bit more boobs and butt. Although her weight did fluctuate from time to time, you know, because she's a human being, and that's what happens to us. Um, so sometimes experts are like, maybe she got up to a size large sometimes, but for the most part, she was still a pretty thin woman, possibly maybe being a mid-sized woman at one point in her life. For reference though, everybody of course knows this by now, yeah, the Kim Kardashian thing. She wore one of Marilyn's famous dresses to the Met Gala uh, this month and reported having to lose 16 pounds to fit into the garment, which people got really angry with because she had to lose 16 pounds in three weeks and it was really unhealthy and not uh. a good thing to be promoting. 
and she even had to tie the back of the dress closed over her butt because it only kind of fit her in the end and then she had to carry that jacket to cover where it didn't fit over her butt so you know it it's not like I don't know I just think it's interesting where like society does this thing where it's like look at this skinny woman she's plus size you know yeah and it's like, I don't know that that's good for anybody. I think that people want actual plus size representation. People want to see actual fat people like being glamorous and amazing if they want or being comfortable or casual. If they just like living a normal life, like we get to see thin people do that. And I think when people are like, you got plus size representation, Marilyn Monroe with a 22 inch waist. It's just kind of like, what? Like, that's not what people were asking for at wow. all. I did not know that. But I, it's, that's one of those things that I just don't think about. Yeah, I would never think about it either. So, you know, Marilyn Monroe, though, did popularize that super hourglass curvy shape and also repopularized blonde hair and bleaching hair became super popular again, as did wearing bright red lipstick. And that lipstick color is something that had evolved from like Hollywood, like movies, because people started doing their makeup differently to be in movies because of how it appeared on screen. Mm. So that kind of changed the makeup standards in the United States that came after that. And then after that kind of Marilyn Monroe Hollywood glam era, um, what do you think happened as the 1950s came to a close? Um, I mean, 60s, flower power. So it was just like long, straight hair, like no makeup. Or like my, my mom would tell me, she's like, we wore like white or blue eyeshadow and sometimes like white lipstick. Oh, yeah. Um, and like, but not a like, I feel like it was either mod, which was like, um, like probably like maybe the white lipstick and the white eyeshadow with like maybe some eyeliner, like Twiggy. I think yes. of like uh, that as like the makeup thing where, or like bright eyeshadow or the hippie look, which was like no makeup, long, straight hair. Yeah. So the 1960s is definitely when we entered the swinging 60s trend. And that was super inspired by London at the time. Um, but had a huge influence on American women's fashion. And again, the pendulum swung away from that curvy body type and back towards what people call a willowy, thin, slender, boyish shape. And whether you were like a hippie or not, like that was still kind of the idealized body type was that tall and thin. And I think we all kind of imagine Twiggy as being the perfect example of this. Like, and we just see that fashion swings on that pendulum and so does the idea of an ideal body to go from Marilyn Monroe to Twiggy. You know, we went from like the flapper to Marilyn back to Twiggy. And there was also though, at the same time, another beauty movement growing in the US, which embraced blackness in the 1960s called Black is Beautiful. Cause obviously up until this point, like white supremacy had forced like black people and especially black women to like minimize their blackness in order to fit in with society. So, you know, they would expect you to have straight hair rather than curly hair or do all these things to try to like assimilate and the black is beautiful movement really embraced like all elements of like what it meant to look black so natural hair and afros and traditionally black features and this was really revolutionary at the time because it was you know in the face of mostly white advertising and media pushing this really narrow white beauty standard on everybody in the united states and i read some accounts of um people who grew up during this era or whose parents grew up during this era. And a, a lot of them like recall that the seeing the black is beautiful campaigns for the first time 
like really made them feel beautiful as black people for the first time. And it's really interesting because on one hand, you're like, capitalism is this terrible machine that's awful for all of us. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, representation actually does help people, Mm -hmm. you know, and representation, what does that mean? It's usually through the lens of capitalism, right? It's like representation in the media, representation in advertising, which feels silly. But then on the flip side, you see that it actually has really positive effects on people's lives to just see someone like them. If they have to see people trying to sell them things all day, every day, like just to see someone who looks like you looking back at you, it removes like the trauma of judging yourself so harshly and Mm -hmm. your appearance so harshly. And then you're just a person there with another person trying to sell you something. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, this is like a big question, how like beauty standards would change if like, let's just say poof overnight, no more money, no more capitalism, you don't buy or sell stuff. Like, how would it change? Yeah, I just wonder like what it would be like if like you're like, you didn't have to look a certain way to just be valued as an individual and respected with like, the full like like love and light of life like regardless regardless of what you look like what what would it be like yeah i mean i feel like it would it would be like being a a white man right (laughs) in the united states anyway right or i mean maybe but also we do have beauty standards for men that are applied in the united states like Women usually want men to be very tall, you know? They usually... I hear that one a lot. Right, right. And women do like a man that's muscular. So it's not like men are exempt from beauty standards. They're just less susceptible to them than white women are. And in a place like the United States, white women are less susceptible to beauty standards than women of color are. And then, you know, also if you add the intersections of, like, how disabled people are susceptible to beauty standards Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's, like, all these intersections, right, of everything. So... I don't know. Maybe I think you would truly have to undo capitalism and patriarchy. It's like one of those things. It's like it's hard to see because we're just so in it. We're so in it. And that's what I think is interesting about beauty standards from country to country. Because it's like, okay, like I live in the United States where we have horrible beauty standards that we've exported to everybody in the world that are super narrow and restrictive. And just like, you know, like white colonization has destroyed all these places. Also exporting our white beauty standards has probably destroyed all these places so obviously i have no right to judge or have opinions about any beauty standard that happens anywhere else because i know firsthand like ours here in the united states are so destructive and i wonder like is the whole world at the mercy to some extent of white american beauty standards as well just because we're such like a dominant global force through militarization and colonization yeah that's a hard one to like wrap like wrap your brain around like what how how deep it goes yeah there's something that I learned in fashion school that I thought was interesting about Issey Miyake Mm -hmm. so you know obviously after the United States dropped nuclear weapons on Japan on Hiroshima Nagasaki um there was still a huge military presence from the U.S. military there in Japan for a long long time and Issey Miyake was telling a story about growing up in Japan and being around that huge military presence and being too young to really understand the consequences of nuclear war obviously um, and just being excited that the American soldiers had Disney merchandise so he grew up being really really fascinated with like Mickey Mouse and western Disney merchandise because of the direct effects of colonization and that influenced his very first you know collection he made it was all like Disney Western pop culture inspired. Interesting. Yeah, it was really, really interesting because you're like, oh, obviously this is a fucking horrifying thing that the United States has done, right? Like we're the only country in the world that's actually used nuclear weapons and we did it in this horrifying way. And, you know, you imagine Issey Miyake is just this little boy. He has no idea. 
he's just like, I like Mickey Mouse. That's yeah. cool, you know? And you're like, wow, this it's just like how pervasive it is. So anyway, back in the United States, we're at the 1980s now. You kind of touched mm. on the 70s with like the 60s and the 70s with like the, the hip, hippie kind of thing. And at the end of the 70s and going into the 80s, we had that Jane Fonda yeah emergence yeah uh you know who i think of as like the 80s like uh ideal is uh uh gina davis yes like in like uh what's that movie like earth girls are easy oh or weird science like kind of like the perm the curly hair the perm and then like it's like a very like if you see like i feel like that was the emergence of like uh everybody had a poster of uh someone in a bikini possibly drinking a beer like the string the string bikini era and also very tan it was very tan very curly hair um very string bikini and the idea was this random idea of fitness and strength yes like like women were still skinny they were expected to be very skinny but also they were expected to have toned arms and a tight butt yeah and maybe some abs yeah yeah definitely like it was like a fitness craze and Jane Fonda really epitomized that because she had all the fitness and workout videos and this was that era where everybody was spending a ton of money remember on like home exercise equipments and gyms so it was this very like Work out, get buff, build muscle, ah, yeah, beauty like, standard. Like wearing like leotards. Yes, this was the leotard era, which I think we talked about maybe in our mall episode. Yes. Yeah, the biker shorts with the thong leotard over it. That was <laughs> it. And you could just wear that. Leg warmers, they were like part of gym clothes that people just started wearing out. Um, I kind of like that style because like it, I feel like I'm uh, like like when I'm like around my house because I'm just like I'm loose (laughs) yes it's comfortable it's really comfortable yes but it also is very body like body con as a fashion trend it's very tight to your body so you have to be really comfortable like with people just looking at your body like Mm -hmm. especially you ever see somebody um who's wearing like skin colored leggings and you're like they're just naked I'm uncomfortable and then you get closer and know they're just leggings that happen to be the same color as their skin (laughs) yeah I mean, it's a very, like, vulnerable way to dress because Mm -hmm. you feel very exposed with everything being so tight on your body, even if it's not skin-colored. It's still vulnerable, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all of this, then we hit the 90s, which is when you and I started to get conscious. We were growing up in it. Yeah, I feel like 90s was, like, Kate Moss. Yep, exactly. Or they called it heroin chic. Yes, they did. And so the pendulum swung away from that the muscular body, remember, we, they still wanted boobs. It was tits and muscles and then, you know, the the muscle butt, right, of the 80s. And then now with the pendulum sw- switching away from that and back into the twiggy, very skinny, very frail 1920s, 1960s kind mm-hmm. of a look. So the goal of this was to be basically a waif. You wanted to look androgynous. You wanted to look very, very, very pale. I saw someone online describe this era as the, the era of women looking neglected. Yeah, like, I think of, yeah, I think of, like, also, like, Fiona Apple. Yes, yes, you wanted to look sick and dying. Um, The neglected thing really stood out to me, though. That made me laugh a lot. Because, like, the 80s was kind of about over-attention. Like, fitness, working out, a regimen, like, really paying attention, like, weird health food crazes. And the 90s, on the flip side, was about, like, nearly dying, apparently. Not that, like, working out a shit ton won't kill you, too. It will. It's just a different type of dying. But, like... Yeah, the idea of neglect, I think, really does sum it up. Like, the idea would have to be, like, I just can't be bothered to care for myself at all. I'm dying, you I know? just live on cigarettes and whiskey. Exactly. Like, Kate Moss used to go around saying shit like, nothing tastes as good as skinny looks. And it's just this kind of 
inaction. But it's like a dangerous, violent inaction, obviously. Anything that encourages people to just not eat is violent and horrifying. Um, but this was also that same era, speaking about, you know, like the Marilyn Monroe thing, this was the same era where everyone was calling Kate Winslet fat. Do you remember? Boggles my mind. Yeah, and it's obviously hard to tell anyone's size from photos. Like, it's impossible to tell. Um, but I took a guess looking at her. I do have a background in clothing design, which means I'm probably better than, like, the average person at guessing sizes of people. And I guess she was maybe a size 8, which was a medium. And then I looked it up, and she was actually a size 6, which, depending on your size chart, is either a bigger end of a size small or the smaller end of a size medium. So medium. She was a medium. She was a very small woman. And this was our plus size beauty standard of the 90s. Yeah. A medium. Yeah. And also she was tormented and bullied for being a fat woman in air quotes. Big air quotes. That's fucking crazy. I know. It's wild. It's very, very uh, shocking that this was presented as being like diversity. It reminds me of um, one of my friends who's a model who is like a size small but happens to have like boobs and a butt and she has told me that lots of times she shows up on set for photo shoots and she realizes she's been cast as the plus size model oh wow yeah yeah yeah. and she's like i wear a size small like i am not the plus why you don't what i cannot be your plus size model i'm a size small book a plus size model you know so i feel like that's kind of the same treatment kate winslet got you know around this time yeah Oof. very very interesting um and one of the theories for why the 90s convinced us all that Kate Winslet was a fat person is this idea of an increasing polarization of weight presentation in the media, which is super interesting. So basically we had these ultra skinny models in the 90s, which were presented as being beautiful. Then we had people starting to talk about this thing that's not really a real thing around the same time, but has been all over the media ever since, and it is the obesity epidemic. That's also in air quotes, by the way. Yeah, not real, a great, podcast which has a very good fat and queer view of like all this all the body stuff maintenance phase talks a lot about the quote unquote obesity epidemic like i'm just gonna spoiler alert not real yeah not real at all but what we had at this time was the media kind of doing this double duty where we see all the super 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 underweight like medically there might be an issue here thin bodies and the media is like beautiful normal and then we show these larger bodies which were healthier bodies if we want to talk about that weird healthy thing that people do which is a weird term anyway looking at that and being like "Uh uh-uh no unhealthy bodies overweight bodies fat bodies and you know just to give you an idea of how skewed this all was being medically underweight is between two to four times more likely to kill you depending on the source as being what we consider overweight based on the BMI, which is a totally bullshit thing that shouldn't even exist. So all science goes to prove that being medically underweight is very, very, very bad for you. And we have this whole idea of this thing called uh, the the obesity paradox. Have you heard of this? No. Where doctors are like, oh, I can't figure out why people who are classified as being obese on our BMI scale are actually way healthier and more likely to like survive oh, surgeries. And I have things. heard of this. Yes. And you're like, maybe it's because the BMI scale makes no fucking sense. I and mean, it's total bullshit. Uh, I believe it was invented by insurance companies. Right. So basically we had this really polarizing view of weight happening in the world and it created this binary system of assessing people's bodies. There was only skinny, which was good. And to be skinny, you had to look like Kate Moss. And then there was fat, which was bad. And we didn't see a lot of fat people. So basically anyone who wasn't Kate Moss was fat and bad. 
that was how our media presented it. And it had this huge impact on like everyone, how they viewed themselves, how they viewed health, how they viewed mental health. And it was really, really bad for like everybody, right? I feel like the 90s was a terrible place for self-image, for how you would feel about your body. Yes. Then we hit the next kind of era, the turn of the century, right? Y2K era. And I feel like what I relate to with this is Pamela Anderson. I feel like two sides of the coin with Y2K. One is Pam Anderson. Two is Paris Hilton. Oh, Paris Hilton continued that kind of like Kate Moss ultra thin. Like I feel like it even got like more thin. Like it got like more extreme in like the early like Y2K. That's a really good observation because yeah, we had all like the party, the drug girl party lifestyle. Or we had like the Pamela Anderson who was really, 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 really thin still, but just with fake boobs. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like our idea of like, quote unquote, voluptuous happening around that time. But it was still just a very thin woman with breast implants. Um, I think of Pamela Anderson, I think, because that was like the beauty standard in my town. And that's like what in my teenage years, as I was getting older, I grew up thinking like, oh, that's what you're supposed to look like, apparently. Just like big, big, big fake boobs. And around the same time that these two things were happening, between 1999 and 2006, hospitalizations for eating disorders in the U.S. spiked 119% among children under 12. Wow. Yes. So you were right that the 90s, it was very, very detrimental for people's psyche and understanding of self. I mean, not that all the other times in history weren't as bad. You know, I just feel like the media presented like... It was so focused on weight in the 90s. Like, it was, ex- like, extremely... I just remember this being a kid. Just extreme, like, nightly news, which you would watch because pre-internet. Mm-hmm. Like, all this stuff about weight. Yeah. And another study uh, found that the incidence rate of eating disorders for people aged 10 to 49 in the UK, it rose from 32.3 for every 100,000 people in the year 2000 to 37.2 in 2009. So all these numbers were kind of starting to go up around this era. And the peak age of onset for an eating disorder diagnosis in women is during adolescence, between 15 and 19, according to that study. Very, very susceptible to these media influences. So then after this, I feel like we entered the 2010s, which was Tumblr era. And Tumblr era was toxic for body. Oh, I, okay, I was not on, I was only on Tumblr for like, vintage stuff i was just like really obsessed with the 90s uh okay well it was tragic thigh gap thin spoke eating oh, disorder hell i okay i hell. knew about this but i never crossed crossed that like into that because i was just like ooh, tumblr seems like it get real bad yeah this is like really dark and i hope this isn't like triggering or upsetting for anybody but this is kind of like a triggering upsetting episode it's like a whole fucked up episode about all yeah, the shit this about whole- beauty we've all had to deal with in different ways that's just like oh this is bad it just feels like also like just generally icky commenting on like other people's like like or like like the media commenting on other people's bodies even talking about that feels icky yeah it's just an icky principle um yeah so the only reason why I knew how prevalent that was is because in that era I had a blog and I'm a naturally child-sized person. I've talked about this before before, actually on the internet. You're a petite person. I'm a petite person. I'm trying to get stronger as I get older because in my family, women are very, very frail and thin and they tend to fall and hurt themselves a lot. So that's why I started going to the gym to try to lift weights because I'm like, I can't just be like 
I call it like the the sickly ghost of a Victorian child. Like that can't be my reality. Like I need to be sturdy. You know, I need to be planted to the ground. Anyway, at whatever rate, pictures of me on the internet would end up on these thinspo blogs a lot. Oh, God. And I would feel so disturbed. People would tell me and I would go try to get people to take these pictures down. And I would have to tell people like, this is not something, like we are all our own natural body type. Like you cannot put this up as though if people just worked hard enough, they could look like this. Like I have to wear children's clothes. Like this is not a normal size for an adult woman to be like, this is you like, you can't do this. It's just like, that's your natural body type. That's my natural body type. And also like, I don't know. It's just, and then you feel responsibility because you're like, Oh God, I look like this. And like this person's using my photos and like, what can I tell them in like three sentences? That's like, Hey, you can't do this. You got to take this picture down, but also like you shouldn't do this to yourself, you know? And that's not, I'm not qualified to do that, right? So I remember this being a very difficult era for everybody who was on Tumblr. There was a lot of this content floating around. So whatever the case, this Tumblr era kind of thing, in 2015, um, nearly one-third of children aged 5 to 6 in the United States, when asked to choose an ideal body size, selected someone smaller than their current perceived size of themselves. Mm. And that kind of, like, brings us up to here, 2022. And our current trend, you know, it's on the back of all of this, our beauty trends. We have to be skinny in the right places, thick in the right places. It's still a really hard to achieve beauty standard. Um, we do see some movements towards being more inclusive or more diverse. There's a lot of changes moving in a better direction. We see more plus size models, more fat models working in the industry. And we see maybe this goal of working towards a more neutral idea of beauty, but it's still pretty far off on the horizon. Yeah, it still needs to be more diverse. Like, like in because there's just so many different types of people. There are so many different types of people. And I feel like, yeah, the best way to do it is to just be like totally neutral about people's appearance elements that they were born with. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's such a strange world to be like, oh, it's, ugh. It's wild. Um... And then, like, there's this whole idea of why our beauty standards are the way they are. And, like, we've touched on a lot of it. It's white supremacy. It's colonialism. It's capitalism. It's patriarchy. Um, And, of course, Gloria Steinem says, don't assume that standards of beauty are accidental. They reflect the power structure in our society. So in a system of capitalism, power structures and commodification go hand in hand, right? Like, a woman's body in itself is highly commodified in advertisement. And in a system of both capitalism and gender inequality, women are often taught to commodify themselves in order to survive capitalism. And media dictates our social norms, and a lot of our media is dedicated to selling things. So it's this, like, symbiotic relationship between patriarchy and capitalism that just leaves carnage in its path, basically. So thanks to the media, we've become accustomed to extremely rigid and uniform standards of beauty. TV, billboards, magazines, whatever. They mean that we see what society considers or deems beautiful people all the time, more often than members of our own family, maybe. Making exceptional good looks seem real, normal, and obtainable for other people. Um, And maybe for you, if you just bought that product they're advertising. Yeah, I feel like that's a lot of like individual stigma and also like not to mention very straight cis oh yeah for sure and then there's like this whole way it ties in with capitalism is moving away from strict standards of beauty that means trouble through the lens of capitalism and often in very direct and literal ways right the diet industry is a 72 billion dollar industry and they profit from making sure the beauty standard stays as unachievable as possible The harder it is for you to ever meet the beauty standard, the easier it is for them to sell you products. 
So more than two-thirds of girls interviewed in one study said that magazine models influenced their idea of what the perfect body shape was. And according to Bradley University, a multi-billion dollar economy is built on our insecurities about the size, shape, and appearance of our bodies. The leading beauty industries, fashion, cosmetics, weight loss, and cosmetic surgery, realize greater profits the more dissatisfied we are with our appearance. It's hardly surprising then that these industries spend millions of dollars promoting beauty ideals that are almost impossible to achieve. Our continued failure to live up to such ideals virtually guarantees that we will continue to invest our money and our hopes in the latest miracle diet, slimming garments, or age-defying creams and potions. And back in 1990, Naomi Wolf pointed out people in the U.S. spend $20 billion a year on cosmetics alone. That was enough to pay for 2,000 women's health clinics, 33,000 battered women's shelters, 400,000 four-year university scholarships, 200,000 vans for safe nighttime transport, 1 million highly paid childcare workers, or 1 million home health aides for the elderly. The cosmetic skincare market in the U.S. alone made $39.2 billion of revenue in 2020, and the U.S. alone spends $40 billion per year on weight loss programs and products. Eugene Schuler, the creator of L'Oreal, the shampoo people, <laughs> even changed our ideas of normal hair care routines to make money. When they introduced the brand Shampoo in 1938, this guy, Eugene Schuler said, there are 43 million people in France. Let's imagine that those 43 million people washed their hair once a week. We would sell 20 times the number of units that we sell at the moment. Tell people they are disgusting. They don't smell good and they're not attractive. Yeah. Literally, it's the shampoo people all along. <laughs> Author and lecturer Jean Kilborn explains that because advertising is so pervasive in a system of capitalism, it has an immense cultural impact and women and girls are particularly vulnerable to the addictive power of advertising. Kilborn showed that advertising contributes to eating disorders by normalizing and glamorizing unhealthy attitudes to attitudes towards food and also targets adolescents by offering products as solutions. The right lipstick confirms one's femininity. Kilborn explains that women and girls are twice seduced, once by ads and once by products. In her work, she showed that around 1979, fashion models weighed 8% less than the average woman. Then 20 years later, models weighed 23% less than the average woman. Kilborn's argument shows that advertising messages and cosmetic products inherently critique women by painting them as flawed when it comes to beauty, and the solution is to buy the product. In line with Kilborn's findings, girls are getting the message, because 66.3% of girls began wearing makeup when they were between 12 and 15 years old, and when asked whether or not users understood how to use makeup to best flatter their own features, 58.7% of respondents chose agree, yes while another 18.5% chose strong agree, meaning kids are doing this less for self-expression and fun and more instead to try to make themselves more conventionally attractive according to whatever beauty standard is where they are. In other ways, beauty is tied to capitalism beyond our transactional relationship with products and advertising. Attractive applicants for a job have a better chance of getting that job and of receiving higher salaries. One U.S. study found that taller men earned around $600 more per inch than shorter executives. Jeez. Historically, due to slavery in the U.S., colorism and beauty standards emerged as well. As Amira Adawe, founder of the nonprofit organization The Beauty Well Project, explained in a Teen Vogue article, those with darker skin were working in the field outside. Those with lighter skin were favored. They worked in the homes. Those with lighter skin were considered beautiful, and that is still an ongoing thing within cultures and within groups. It's just like everything is always racism all the time. 
Then if you look at it through the lens of patriarchy, in 1991, Naomi Wolf famously dissected the idea of beauty, saying beauty is a currency system like the gold standard. Like any economy, it is determined by politics. And in the modern age of the West, it is last, best belief system that keeps male dominance intact. As Nancy Ekhoff reflects in her paper, Survival of the Prettiest, beauty ushers women to a place where men want them, out of the power structure. Capitalism and patriarchy define beauty for cultural consumption and plaster images of beauty everywhere to stir up envy and desire. The covetousness they inspire serves their twin goals of making money and preserving the status quo. And patriarchy is something that's hard to opt out of, even if you like don't care about the patriarchy at all. As Lindsay King Miller says, as much as I would love to embrace this particular stereotype, queer women don't live in a magical utopia where everyone dances around in uninterrupted harmony with themselves and with nature, eating organic vegetables and never bothering to look in the mirror. Um, although that does sound amazing and I do wish that that were real. Like, the patriarchy even affects people in queer spaces, though statistically, which we've talked about before in different episodes, most notably uh, All of Our Grandpas Are Creeps, about how straight men are all attracted to teenagers. Ugh. Like, there are definitely different standards within, like, queer communities for beauty, and the beauty standards and expectations are less rigid and less focused on youth overall, especially with queer women. It's also worth noting, though, this is really interesting, that bisexual women are more likely to connect their BMI to their body image than their lesbian and queer partners. Uh, and perhaps most interestingly, more even than straight peers and than lesbian peers, bisexual women engage in body checking with the most prevalence, hmm. which is where you look at your body in the mirror maybe and you're like, oh, this is big, oh, this is small, oh, this should be different, oh, this is weird. And bisexual men also report encountering more weight discrimination than gay or straight peers. Hmm. So for some reason, bisexual people are having more statistically body image issues than their straight or otherwise queer or lesbian peers. Interesting. Yeah, isn't it interesting? The recent studies sought to figure out like the psychological effect of beauty standards. There have been a lot of studies like this, um, but this one was pretty interesting. Scientists traveled to an isolated region of Nicaragua where residents don't have electricity and lack access to television or film or the internet. So there were 80 volunteers, men and women, who participated in the study, who lived in this village. And first, they were all asked to describe their ideal body type. Next, they were shown images of models. So half of them were shown 72 photographs of plus-size models. The other half were shown 72 photos of thin models. And the entire process lasted 15 minutes, so really brief. After showing the photos, researchers again asked the villagers to describe their ideal body image one more time and the bodies they described changed on the second description to match more closely with the images they had just been shown. Huh. As the scientist who crafted this study explains, media consumption is associated with a drive for thinness, body dissatisfaction, low self-esteem, and disordered eating in women of Western or industrialized societies. Furthermore, cross-cultural research suggests that the media has similar effects when it's introduced into non-Western or non-industrialized societies. While this study is shocking because it shows the effects just 15 minutes can have on our perception of beauty, the results are conclusive with decades of research into the psychological effects of beauty standards in general. Studies show that when people, especially young women, are exposed to thin models in media, for example, it creates more problematic body image issues and lower self-esteem about their own appearance. It also raises the likelihood of eating disorders, and while these effects are more prominent in women, they affect men too. 
Body image is closely linked to self-esteem on the whole, and negative body image is linked to things like depressive and anxiety symptomology, increased risk of suicidal thoughts, interpersonal problems, alcohol and drug abuse, stress, social isolation, decreased motivation to seek help, perfectionist tendencies, and repetitive negative thoughts. And this makes sense if you think about it, because like there's such like a bullying culture that happens and so much like hostility that people encounter if they don't match the beauty standard like there's actual like legitimate horrifying fat phobia out in the world that's very very violent and scary there's also just like the lack of confidence you have like not communicating with your peers or not feeling comfortable in a space like there's all of these things that add up to just feeling constantly judged and there's this thing that happens especially with women and girls where how well we conform to the beauty ideal establishes how morally good or bad we think we are and this can be heard in language like, I should eat a salad as though there's a right and a wrong thing to eat. And to be good would be to do the thing you should do, which is you should eat the salad, right? That's like a moralizing thing. As one study by Fiona McCallum and Heather Widows explains, that beauty is functioning as an ethical ideal, providing values and standards against which we judge ourselves and others is particularly clear when we consider what it means to fail. Beauty failure results in explicit moral judgments of culpability and responsibility, making beauty failures effectively equivalent to vices. But this is the case as hinted at in the language of beauty as employed by both women and the beauty business, advertisers and women's magazines. Be your best self, the best you can be. It's still you, but the best version of you, the real you. Language such as this directly reveals and communicates the ethical nature of the beauty ideal. You should strive for the best, real you. You ought to invest in yourself because you're worth it. You deserve it. You owe it to yourself. The converse is also true. To fail to engage is to admit or to accept that you're not worth it. You let yourself go. Unpacking the implications of this reveals the moral assumptions underpinning the framework. It implies not only that you should not have let yourself go, but more than this, that it was a bad thing to do and you should work to address your failure. Appearance then becomes a proxy for and an imitation of character and values. Thinness and grooming shows competence and efficiency, and scruffiness and dishevelment reveal inner turmoil or distress. Not dressing appropriately is a failure of respect for yourself or others. Such judgments are routinely and constantly made, read directly from appearance, and are moral. Effectively, they are character assessments of virtues and vices, and we just regard success as virtuous, shame and disgust attached to failure. Studies also show that the more reality television a young girl watches, the more likely she is to find appearance important, which means feeling bad about your appearance might carry more weight emotionally. Students, especially women who consume more mainstream media, place a greater importance on sexiness and overall appearance than those who don't consume as much. And as far back as 1986, it was shown that in 33 popular TV show studies, 69% of women were represented as thin compared to only 18% of men. In one study of magazines, two researchers, Eric Stice and Heather Shaw, randomly assigned 157 female college students to view pictures in magazines that contained either thin models, average models, or no models. Immediately after viewing the pictures, the students responded to a number of items on the questionnaire. The results revealed that the students who had viewed the thin models were more likely to report a variety of negative emotions like stress, shame, guilt, depression, and insecurity, and also indicated higher levels of body dissatisfaction. A second finding of the study was that in general, students who reported high levels of body dissatisfaction, regardless of their experimental condition, were more likely also to report that they suffered from the symptoms associated with bulimia. With the increase of media access and technology, 
advancing, it's no surprise that the number of people who report being dissatisfied with their physical appearance has gone up over time. In 1973, 23% of women and 15% of men expressed body dissatisfaction. By 1997, those numbers had gone up to 56% of women and 43% of men. And by 2018, where pretty much everybody had internet in the home at this point, they went up to 83% of women and 75% of men. Wow. I would dare say by 2022, that could be like way higher. I feel like literally it's like so many people. It's so many people. And it makes sense. It's like in 1973, we had TVs in the home. In 1997, you know, we had more fashion magazines, maybe. Uh, And then in 2018, everybody had internet. So it's like the more access people have to media and technology, the more access they have to these types of advertisements and beauty standards. And according to experts, by age three or four, some children have already decided that there's a right and a wrong way for bodies to look. And furthermore, they've already begun to decide for themselves how their own body should look. So one study of daycare workers in the UK observed 19% of children there, age three to five, avoided certain foods out of fear of fatness. Three to five years old. I know, it's so sad. They're babies. One study in 2004 looked at the top 25 children's videos found on mainstream media outlets and saw that two-thirds of these videos linked thinness and physical attractiveness with positive personality traits like caring and kindness. And 75% of the videos linked obesity and unfavorable traits. So by 2010, these figures had grown even worse, with 87% of female characters portrayed as underweight in 180 popular children's cartoons. And another study of children's cartoons found that overweight characters were more likely to be portrayed as unintelligent and unhappy compared to underweight characters. So remember the thing about how 91% of women are unhappy with their bodies and resort to dieting? Well, an estimated 30 million people in the U.S. currently struggles with an eating disorder, 20 million women and 10 million men, and 95% of them are between the ages of 12 and 25. Perhaps most harrowing and something I didn't think that people like truly realized is that eating disorders have the highest mortality rate out of any mental illness. So every hour, at least one person dies in the U.S. as a direct result of an eating disorder. Despite this, in the U.S., eating disorder research is the least funded of all mental illness research. So while the media conveys this, like, kind of makeover mania, especially on reality TV, that anyone can change the way they look if they just try hard enough, the reality is that doing things like crash diets and chronic on-again, off-again dieting, it causes our bodies to adjust to these self-imposed periods of famine by slowing down our metabolism and more efficiently storing fat so that we can survive and be healthy. In a sense, that means that dieting can actually lean us to gain weight, making us more likely to diet again, gain more weight, and diet again. This type of extreme dieting can take a major toll on our health, including damaging organs and even causing death. And remember, all of this is while people who register as overweight on that stupid BMI scale that isn't even real actually have a lower risk of death than underweight people do. And underweight people, of course, are the people we see as the beauty standards in media. So there have been all these efforts, right, that we've seen to kind of move out of this. Like in 2015, Robin Lawley was the first plus-size model featured in Sports Illustrated Swimsuits issue. In 2016, fashion designer Christian Siriano featured five plus-size models in a show during New York Fashion Week. That same year, toy manufacturer Mattel debuted a line of Barbie dolls depicting diverse body types, including curvy shapes, which is good because one study showed that just looking at an old-school Barbie doll was proven to increase a child's desire for thinness, uh, if they were between five to eight years old. 
Beauty is definitely diversifying on the whole, and a major component of that is social media. While algorithms dictate which images we view online, social media platforms have also been caught like suppressing the views of people deemed less conventionally attractive or desirable. Despite all of that, social media still has managed to be a place where people are regularly able to see bodies outside of the lens of the traditional media that came before. Which means that in some roundabout way, despite all odds, people have managed to find a way to kind of democratize beauty. You can choose to follow people of different sizes or with different facial features and provide a media experience unique just to you that shows the kind of people you want to look at. And there's science to back this up. One recent study from Florida State University found that college-aged women who were dissatisfied with their bodies received psychological benefits from exposure to photos of plus-size models. Just to show that, like, there's not one beauty standard. Look at how great these people look, too. Another study at University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia tested the effects of body positivity on the mind and found that research participants who viewed body positive social media, both with and without captions, experienced improvements in body satisfaction. The effects on body satisfaction were slightly stronger for the body positive media with captions, suggesting that messages reinforcing the ideals of the body positive movement may pack a double dose of positive impact. On the flip side though, a UK study showed that 49% of frequent Instagram users showed signs of what's called orthorexia nervosa, which I never heard of before, but it's really interesting. It's um, a fixation with eating clean or pure foods, mm. which I feel like I know a lot of people who do this. And that was compared with less than 1% of the UK's overall population. So exposure to social media can be a mixed bag and you really have to put the time and energy into curating a space that you feel safe and comfortable being in. In fact, some people are even now saying that the body positivity movement might not be a safe and comfortable space for everybody to participate in because it can have the potential to have adverse psychological effects on some people as well. As Alyssa Royce explains, believing we should love everything about our bodies makes us feel like a failure if we don't. Sometimes it seems that body positivity doesn't leave any room for insecurities and frustrations, which every single one of us struggles with. So an alternative many people are now interested in is this thing called body neutrality. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an alternative. It can also work along with body positivity. But body neutrality just says that instead of loving everything about your body or hating things about your body, you can aim to exist without having to consider your body that much at all one way or another. So there are all these opportunities within social media that you can kind of craft whatever is going to work best for your experience that helps reinforce ideas that are good and healthy for you outside of the mainstream kind of mode. And you won't be able to avoid all the content that makes you feel like shit about yourself, right? But you can kind of stack the odds in your favor that you're going to see a lot more of the content that makes you feel good and happy about yourself and the world. And while media on the whole can be a lot to navigate, limiting all of the media influence in the world won't help if you're receiving that negative reinforcement about ideas of bodies in your own home, which unfortunately a lot of kids do. One study looked at 581 parents who had children between nine to 15 years old. And out of these parents, 76% had used something called fat talk uh, and about themselves though in front of their kids so that would be like your parent being like oh my god I'm so fat yuck or like oh this makes me look fat or like oh I can't eat that because I'm oh it'll make me fat so that kind of thing which a lot of parents do in front of their children not realizing that it's really really bad for their children to hear that kind of shit and over half of these parents did it multiple times and nearly half 44 percent admitted to using fat talk about their children's weight in front of those same children and these kids, children who were the subject of fat talk in the home, were found to be significantly more associated with disordered eating. 
Another crucial component of deconstructing beauty standards is media literacy. So you can take the time to set up your social media feeds to be a place that you're happier to be. You know, you can unfollow people who make you feel bad about yourself. You can follow people who make you feel safe and comfortable. You can do your best to limit the kind of negative talk in your home about people's bodies, your own, other people's, people you see on TV. And another major thing you can do to kind of help with all of this is to try to learn media literacy skills. A 2005 study of 123 college-aged women found that if participants were trained on media distortion, Photoshop, and advertising first, they were less likely to be affected when viewing thin models in the media. Similarly, a 1998 study found that analyzing the fashion industry helped college students distance themselves from idealized thinness. So it's kind of like exposure therapy. If you learn more about what advertising does and how they're trying to trick you and the techniques they use and things like Photoshop and lighting and makeup and you know optical illusions and all that, you're gonna be less likely to be affected. It'll make you more able to look at a photo and be like, well, that's just a photo. Who knows what that person actually looks like? So in conclusion, I don't know, beauty standards are fucked, right? They're inescapable. Like. I'm reminded of this picture of a woman protesting outside of Hooters. Have you ever seen this? It's like Mm -mm. this woman holding a sign and it says, women are not for decoration. And then there's a Hooters girl standing to the left of her holding a sign that says some. So it looks like it says some women are not for decoration, implying the protester is ugly by conventional beauty standards. And that's why she can't be a Hooters girl. But the Hooters girl is pretty and is therefore aware of her commodification as an asset of decoration. It's funny but it's also weirdly brilliant to me because the Hooters girl is actually right, I think, or maybe they're both right. Women shouldn't exist for decoration, but we don't live in an idealized society. We live in this one right now where attractive people earn more money and are better liked by their peers. It's oppression, obviously, but there are two ways to deal with it without having total Stockholm syndrome. You can fight it like the protester, or you can accept it and be in on the joke and try to survive it and maybe even have a little fun with the way you look in the process. Like, I like putting on makeup and little outfits because it's decoration and it's fun and I enjoy it. However, ideally, I wouldn't have to do that to make it through life. And when I look at both of those women in that picture, I see two people I can relate to. Like, the protester is the woman inside me. The Hooters girl is the way I cope to get through the day. And that's a privilege, right? Because I'm thin and I'm white and I have the fair eyes and I get to choose which of these two women I want to be. And I could have chosen to be more like the Hooters girl probably if I hadn't gotten all my stupid tattoos and piercings. And there's definitely privilege to be in proximity to the beauty standard and to have that choice. But the question is, is it taking the easy way out to blame to the system? Or is it easy to reject the system completely? Like which is harder to play along with it or to challenge it? And if I look at that picture, I feel like I'm both of those women, which is weird because I rarely feel like a woman at all. And I don't think I would feel like either one of them individually. Together though, they're me, I think. <laughs> so what do you think, Hannah? What are your thoughts? Oh my gosh, this is such a huge topic. I feel like we could go on for more hours. I know, it's a long episode, sorry. It's I- a it's a long one and there's there's so there's so much stuff wrapped up in it. Like, you know, even if like, you know, like not just accepting your body but loving it is like sometimes can be can seem very radical. And, you know, I was actually listening to this episode of, like, uh, like some podcast. I think it was, like, Brene Brown or something. Don't judge me. <laughs> this was a while back where she was talking to this woman who uh, named uh, Sonia Renee Taylor about, like, body acceptance and how important it is not just for you 
to love yourself, but by proc that means that you have respect for other people just by the fact that they're living and they're alive and they're like no one's born in a quote like wrong bodies like just by living you are awarded the same uh respect as anybody else like the same like love and deserving and it was so like I don't know why but at the time I was like yeah I never think about it so sometimes when like you know someone talks bad about themselves like uh like my I you know like whatever we all talk you we all have some you know bad self talk sometimes when you like you make that further you're like well what if someone else has that too are they less worthy I'm like talking shit about them right exactly I think people think that they're being hard on themselves but really what they're being hard on is like a trait or a quality of themselves that many other people also have and it's not good or bad it's not good or bad it's just a neutral it's just the way it is. And I think, like, yeah, a lot of people maybe don't realize that, you know, that you're not, when you, like, the idea of, like, um, the fat talk of the parents in front of their kids, it's like, okay, if a mom is standing in a kitchen going, I can't eat that, it's going to make me fat, and her child's watching, like, does she really just not think about the fact that her child's going to internalize that moment and then go to school and be one of those three to five-year-olds, the 19% of which is avoiding food because they're afraid of getting fat? Yeah, that thinks that, like people who are fat are bad or morally wrong like no like your your body size has nothing to do with how moral you are it's just the same thing that i hate where it's just like people think uh how healthy you are has is some moral thing right because like i know from having like um a sudden onset like chronic illness that was very extreme like it can happen to anybody like i you know to for me like I had people being like your vibes aren't aren't high enough your vibrations are not high (laughs) enough therefore you got sick if you would have just eaten um more fruits and vegetables I was vegan I was vegetarian like yeah there's a lot of things that are like that like to a lesser degree obviously but like when I had acne it was like that if you have acne everyone wants to tell you what you're doing wrong why you have acne and what you need to be doing to not be having acne For me, I'm like, okay, I think it's genetic. My mom is 40 and still has acne. Of course, I still have acne. We just have acne in my family, you know? But it's like people won't accept that. There are certain things when it comes to anything like aesthetic or health or body. They're like, you're just not trying hard enough to do whatever the thing is you need to do to make this go away. Yeah, and it is really cruel. Like, to tell someone who's sick to be like, well, you're just not trying hard enough when the person most likely has fucking tried everything. Oh, right. Yeah, it's horrifying. Or just even if they didn't, It doesn't matter. It's not their fault. Yeah, none of it matters. It's like, I don't know. I've always kind of thought, like, if you have, like, an opinion about how anybody else looks, like, maybe you're just kind of an asshole, you know? Or, like, you know, you might have, like, an opinion to the extent where it's like, oh, I wouldn't wear that, but it's like, you're not them, so it doesn't matter. Or, you know, things like that. But it's like, you don't, just to have an opinion in general about how people should look, how they shouldn't, like, all of that is just this really weird kind of, I don't know, it's just like a very... I can't understand that thinking because it's not relevant to you literally at all what other people look like or, you know, what... It's just very strange. It's very dated, weird thinking to me. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, to me, okay, beauty is... I, I feel like I got I got this one nice thing from my mom where she's like, I literally just think people... She's like, I never realized this until later. Um, I just people who are really nice and kind I automatically think are beautiful even if they're conventionally unattractive or like conventionally not like you know the the beauty standard Mm -hmm. and she's like I didn't realize this until I started telling her like my friend so gorgeous most beautiful person I've ever met and they're like 
they meet her and they're like, we thought you were introducing us to a supermodel. And I was like, oh, I feel like that's more like a beauty standard for me is like how nice or kind or interesting or like stuff like that. Which yeah, is like, definitely. People's which personalities. Is, yeah, people's... which is not the norm, you know. Right. It's definitely true. Um, I think, yeah, like to bring it back to like the celebrity thing too, it's like it's almost irrelevant trying to come up with a beauty standard because what everybody likes is so unique and so different. Like when we were trying to guess, when Kenna was trying to guess like which celebrities other people would rank as more attractive, it's hard because because we all like different things and look for different things. And the reality is there is no obvious yes or no because beauty standards actually like when functioning in our day-to-day life, outside of media, outside of advertising, outside of advertising, people's brains don't really work that way. No, like, no, yeah. It's just like, mo- like yeah, we know the guy who was like, I only date 5'11 models. Right. But like, but mo- he was a trip to us. We were yeah, like, we were like, what? Because most people are just like, I'm just vibing with people around me. Like, they're not yes. being... Like, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, we hear, like, girls being like, I only date people who are over six feet tall. But honestly, like, that's not, like, I feel like that's not, like, the most common. I also feel like that's kind of the people you hear who are single a lot, are the people who make those really, like, strict, arbitrary rules about what people are supposed to look like or not look like. Because... In reality, like, if you want to fall in love with somebody, like, a- attraction is not based on proximity to conventional attractiveness most of the time. It's yeah. based on how open you are to getting to know that person, to talk to that person, to get a sense of their vibes. And, but the adverse thing is obviously, like, people do suffer and experience really real oppression socially from not adhering to the beauty standards in different contexts that make it harder for them to feel comfortable around people to open up to people yeah. to feel comfortable in those spaces yeah and I mean like I feel like especially in the workplace there's always that pressure yes. to like look good I mean or like always look presentable like all which you know is not on men as much right and it's usually also coded white supremacy racism things like yeah what, what black women can do with their hair in workspaces what's deemed presentable in that context it's, it's like just so super loaded it's super tricky yeah anyway so that was our episode our fucked up episode about beauty standards and yeah. how shit and garbage it is yeah it's 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 fucked so man. in summary be kind to yourself because you deserve it and because there's somebody else out there who's similar to you and they deserve it too. Yeah, we and all just need to be kind to ourselves and others. And and t- all the standards that you see around you, it's all capitalism and patriarchy and colonization and white supremacy and fucked up shit anyway. So honestly, the further you are away from those mainstream beauty standards, the better you're probably doing. Because <laughs> those things are violent and bad. And you don't, you don't need any part of that. We don't need any part of that, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody take care of yourselves. Yeah. That was a weird one. Have a good week, man, because this is a weird episode. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $2, you can have access to bonus episodes on our Patreon. We do two there per month, so that's just like a dollar an episode, and honestly, I think it's a pretty good deal. But um, if you don't want to spend $2 on us, it's totally fine. We understand, and we're just happy you're here.